This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to episode 70 of In Class with that. Yeah, we made it. We made it. Well, actually, a little bit because we got like three or four episodes we ain't put numbers on. So that's because you just like slide up into the moment and say, you know what? Let me push record and then drop the jewels. You, know, you are a jewel dropper, Professor Hunter. I'm just saying. Let you me the place with jewels. <laughs> let me just say uh, thank you and good morning, sir. Good morning to you. Uh, good, good morning. morning. You look like you got some sun. You was out in them streets. Yeah, I sat outside. Actually, I walked outside. I'll tell you that story in a minute. I was outside yesterday for a couple of hours. So I'll tell you about that in a minute. How are you? I'm good. You know, I spent a couple of hours myself. We're playing around with this social media platform. Yeah. But you always bronzed up. So I know you get outside. So yeah, yeah no, I, I got you got to get the sun. The S-U-N. Mm-hmm. The S-U-N. That's how we stay uh, on S-U-N. this side as long as possible. Everybody uh, loves the sunshine. Yes. <laughs> All right, so um, what are we talking about today? I said I'm on your time completely. Oh, well, let me. Did I say good morning to everybody from East Coast and, and the other countries and Switzerland, good morning to the globe, the Bermuda and every place in between? Good, good, morning. good morning. Good morning to the globe, especially our kindred in Haiti. I thought what you said, uh, and I caught the conversation. I caught the piece of it you put on YouTube that you had on Sirius uh, earlier in the week uh, before we had a bit of a conversation that you shared with the with the universe. And I thought it was very powerful, the conversation you had with the sister who's writing for the Haitian Times and the brothers about what's going on. And of course, I picked up the paper this morning. Of course, obviously you read it online, but I like the physical paper as we talked about. And uh, looks like everything is going according to plan. Uh, here's the headline. Haiti asked United States to send troops as crisis brews. Check. Anybody surprised it's not paying attention to the history of Haiti? And, and y'all go into narrative and you all look at our extensive conversation. We spent several hours on Haiti and have revisited it. But we know that the uh, current prime minister um, and the one who Moise was going to appoint uh, two days before he was assassinated are battling. But we know that both of those cats are been thoroughly vetted by the United States. The Organization of American States sent us a little special crew in, and then that's when they said we endorse him. Then, uh, of course, the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, immediately endorsed the current guy, which means he's been vetted. This is the game plan. Chaos, will you please come in now? Okay, get the airport, get the fuel, secure us. And there are 11, at least the, the number that's being used consistently is 11, one, one elected parliamentary officials in the country that we know as Haiti. That's very, very deliberate. It's by design. And uh, we don't need to spend much, much time on it this morning, but when we, when we say good morning, we're inside there. Y'all can't see I got my Haitian flag out, my full-size Haitian flag. Oh, you got the full joint. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because we, because you know what? And you know, my people, Philadelphia Freedom Schools, our 21st year, we started in full with the young people this, this week. High school students were actually reading those you might be interested. This is John Rickford's book, We Are an African People, Independent Education, Black Power, and the Radical Imagination. We always pick a very dense and thick academic book for these young people in Philadelphia to dive into. And then we tear it apart page by page, line by line. So, but one summer, about 10 years ago, I don't know if I have, mm, no, I don't see it. But uh, our friend Randall Robinson, who we know very well, who 20 years ago, 21 years ago, actually wrote a book that serves as a bridge between the long 
struggle for reparations in the United States in particular, and the current conversation, a book called The Debt, that was the first book that we uh, did for Philadelphia Freedom Schools, what we call Freedom Summer, in the echo of Freedom Schools in the past. And then Brother Robinson came and spent uh, time with those young people, a couple hundred of them uh, of African descent, including Afro-Latinos, as we might say, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, um, students who were uh, Cambodian, Laotian, Chinese, uh, but mostly Africans born and raised in the United States who came out of enslavement here in the United States. And that, that, and that mingle, he was so impressed that in his next book, and this is actually interesting because all of this, when we hear these African states conceptual categories, they are not something that I just said, okay, oh, boom, boom, boom. This is years of listening and thinking and understanding and seeing the tensions and trying to ask, how can we ask better questions? In his, the first book, The Debt, is called What America Owes to Blacks. That's a social structure conversation. It's what you owe us. You know, the, the next book where he writes about his encounter with those student readers and scholars of Philadelphia Freedom Schools who come from all over the city of Philadelphia, um, not a GPA requirement, not a, you know, top test scores. No, nah, you black, you, you brown, you yellow, you want to come in? You got some white food? Y'all want to come in? Okay, come. But uh, he said he was so blown away with their devotion to scholarship that in his next book, he wrote about them and about how this is what education has looked like for us and what it should look like. The name of that book was The Reckoning, What Blacks Owe Each Other. Mm. hear us say Let's pause for a second. <laughs> yeah you know speaking of exceptional and on uh, since we're here on saturday and we haven't talked about um zyla uh avant-garde shout out let's just take a moment uh because she is the potential that all of our children have you know there's not she's not she's she's magical but there's nothing special nothing at all she, yeah. she's representative Yes, everybody that's raising a child, let them do all of the things. I think we've had a conversation where I said, you know, we've been, you know, indoctrinated into this uh, jack of all trades, master of none. And I'm like, we can do all things and do them well. And she articulated that. She said, everything I do, I do well. Everything. She got Guinness Book World Records. This child. Any, everything I do, I do well. She's 14. 14. She understands who she comes from where she comes from, who she is. Now, I haven't had a chance. She's a, She, of course, made the front page of the Times, and she's a child. So, you know, we in this society are blinded immediately by celebrity. So we know we have to make sure that she isn't, quote, unquote, overexposed. And I haven't got a chance to read through the thing. I'm trying to see. I see that last name, and I see she's from New Orleans. I immediately think Haiti. Do you know, is she? Hey. She but no one's talking about it, right? Avant-garde. Yeah, and, and I don't want to pry too much because, again, this is a child. It's her business, right? But, but yeah, she's from just outside of New Orleans. Harvey, Louisiana, just finished eighth grade, showed us prowess for spelling at 10 when her father, who had been watching the National Bee, asked her how to spell the winning word. And she spelled it perfectly. On the humble, watching it with her pops on the couch. <laughs> you know... Oh, one of my elders, the great Mariba Kelsey, always says this. This comes actually from the period. The reason we're reading this book in Freedom Schools is because it's about the African-centered schools of the 1960s, 70s, 80s, many of which survive to this day. Shout out to the Center of Positive Education, people in Chicago, uh, people in Detroit, Aisha Shule, Du Bois Academy. I could go on Nation House here in D.C. But anyway, one of the things they often said in these schools is black children are geniuses. I mean, it's just like on the walls, on the posters, this kind of thing. So she's sitting on the, it doesn't say where the family came from, but uh, that name, avant-garde, 
I'm mm, that's a French name. And you know, Haiti, one of my former students, uh, now on the faculty of the University of Chicago, one of the most brilliant uh, human beings I've ever encountered, good sister, out of Louisiana, out of New Orleans, Roshana Johnson, uh, wrote a book about, in fact, it was her dissertation, which she started thinking through when we she was an undergrad at Howard. Um, that's going to tie, by the way, to Lovecraft Country, but we'll get there in a second. Um, talk about, <laughs> well, it talks about, and she studied with folks like Walter Johnson and many others who talk about the fact that New Orleans, of course, had and has as much or more in common with the Caribbean with the with as it does with most of the United States. And so New Orleans was the port. In fact, what was it called? Soul by Soul, I think was Walter Johnson's book, where he talks about that port and that and that flesh market in New Orleans, which became for a time the largest market for the trade of enslaved Africans in North America. And of course, those Africans came out of Haiti. So I'm looking at this child's name and I'm saying the ancestors, man, they, they like to just give us little reminders. And of course, finally, just one more thing on her. She is representative, Professor Hunter, because, you know, we had all kind of academic and intellectual competitions in the segregated schools. So her greatest competition 50 years ago, 100 years ago, would have been another black girl or black boy hitting them bricks on those spellers those spellers that we get in the American narrative as, oh, they were in these segregated schools and they were run down. They got secondhand books. True, true, true. And what's your point? Because those are the schools that produced the people that killed Jim Crow. So what was not inferior about them was the human beings. But anyway, come on back. Cause we I want you to, you got to help, help us uh, walk through this. As no. you, go, go, please. No, no, no. I mean, I just, I, I, I wanted to sit, you know, in in the spirit of avant garde for for a minute, just yeah. Because, you know, I feel like even the name avant garde. I was, <laughs> you know, are the ancestors sending this from central script? Yes. I mean, what, are they just writing this? <laughs> yes, and and it's time, you know, uh, to stop with the the reflection of you know the 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 judging of ourselves through somebody else's lens. This young lady ha is there's no mistake in her mind. That uh yeah and she oh yeah I just started a couple of years ago, right? Some and and she so she little shake she said some have been doing this since they were five, Ooh. ten hours a day. Yeah, I'd start a couple of years and it's not my favorite thing. It's not my priority, you know. I do and, Yeah. Oh yeah, and I'm I'm gonna play basketball at Harvard. I'm going to coach. I'm going to become a scientist. You know, I'm probably going to find the cure or something, win a Nobel Prize. I'm going to do all these things. And I said, this is what I'm saying. When we put the limits that people have placed on us, on ourselves, when we shackle ourselves, it's like that elephant in the circus that they put a little, you know, a big chain around them when they're babies, right? And then by the time they're several tons, all they need is a string to keep them. We've had this string around our spirits and around our, our psyches and our brains for so long. It's time. Well, fairly recently we and when then we started tying it to ourselves yes yeah because spelling is not you know everybody's born with whatever we have our equipment but then the work is the socialization is the study is the is is the community and for us as we talk about this african states framework the governance structure so what you're seeing is someone who has been encouraged who's been nurtured who's been supported who's been instructed so she didn't drop out of the sky doing that. I mean, she, like she said, she says, okay, well, some of these people study 10 hours a day. They start when they were five years old. Well, she did too, except she's not just studying spelling words. She's around people for whom excellence is the standard. And any of you all who think about that, and we taught the different things, 
in the South, we used to call it home training. You know, I mean, there's a certain way you enter and exit a room. There's a certain way you speak, which is why, you know, you can tell for me. And I know this is completely unfair, but I don't I'll, I'll use my I just I'll keep it to me just individually. I, I think that if I were sitting around in the house with my mouth open. I would have been told to close it like if I was just sitting somewhere like this. <laughs> Boy, close your mouth with the vacant gaze and the. You breathing out your mouth, son? Huh? What? Oh, I'm sorry. So fairly or unfairly, when I see people just be, I'm like, who who you been around? Who raised you? And, that, and that's not, I mean, and that's not fair. You understand? But uh, what I'm saying is it's socialization. She isn't, because what will happen often in this society, and I'm thinking now about Dee, the little girl in in uh in, in Lovecraft country, right? Who, by the way, is an invention of Misha Green crew because Matt Bruff is a little boy in the book in the novel but at any rate um you know she's magic she's also fictional like wakanda and all these other unreal places that black folk want to kind of create we're going to talk about that too in terms of escapism as avoidance but we have a real life d and guess what as you say she's not an outlier that's what it looks like when you surround in a community but what we almost always have to guard against very consciously in the social structure is that individuals like this will be pulled out and made into magical Negroes. That's why I wanted to say she's special. Not that she's not special. She is special. She's not unique. She's absolutely special. She's absolutely special. She's not unique. Not the Freedom School kids who come from all walks of life, you're not cherry picking. Nope. One summer, you're able to transform them and turn them into scholars. Well, move them in that direction. Right. But it has, it has to be in them. It has to be able to, to do that, you yeah. know, for Randall Robinson to be impressed with kids oh. that you didn't cherry pick. No question. It's already in them. So, no I'm just like, you know, it's important for us to be mindful. Those of you who are raising children, the children that are in here, you know, push yourself to the limits because you're limitless and, you know, use avant-garde as a measure or as a representation. But there's so many avant-gardes out there, literally. So Right, and use her, use her as inspiration and find those places. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I could talk about freedom schools a long time. In fact, we go on the narrative side, maybe we'll pull some of our freedom school lunk. We got 21 years of them. And uh, some of them, you know, the girl I call it, she's my child, uh, Shanice Thompson, who's a professor at Bowie State University, has a PhD from Ohio State, a master's degree from Boston University, came down to Howard. I had her since she was 16 years old. She showed up at Freedom Schools. We started reading these books. She's okay, this is cool. And she was a basketball player too, from right across the street in North Philly, the charter school. She walked across to the school district headquarters with the rest of the students, and we'd be right in there. But I mean, there are stories like that over and over. I can think about all these students like that right now. Uh, the students in leadership who are doing it now, Ashrae Hines and uh, Nadira Sulaiman, they are they are teachers. You know, I mean, they're both you know past undergrad, graduate school, going back, and now they're so I get to just come in and watch, and then you know we talk about the book. But they they've written the curriculum, they've done all that work, and that's what it looks like. We have an expectation, and we and then we provide students with the tools. For years, we used to just we we'd have a book, and then we would buy dictionaries. Okay, here. You have eyes, you got fingers, let's sit, let's sit, let's go. And so removing the idea that you can't do it and getting out of their way, because if it were video games or basketball or a dance move or something for TikTok, you wouldn't even think about it. You get out of their way. It's a book. Oh, no, see, that's the social structure invading. And guess what? This ain't new. Because what the first thing we're going to do, and this is why the symbol of our freedom school is Jehudi, the writer. There's Jehudi right there. And we don't get into light skin versus dark skin. Why? 
you see no faces afro puffs and he got the shortcut she's writing with the feather of my eye and he's reading oh by the way uh this came from a sister monique who at time was uh brother cedric in in brazil his partner she designed this okay. so i mean this is all you know he in fact cedric ran freedom schools Shout out to Cedric Miles, who was participating in the hub and doing a lot of Brazilian work. Uh, and and we're collecting there too. You know, I mean, this is the yeah. gathering. This is how we how we get free. This is how we become, you know, the all of the things that we were supposed to be is by gathering and collecting the excellence among us and then putting it back out. Putting it back out. That's exactly right. So I mean, so let's use our sister. Okay. Let's use let's use our young sister just for a second to bring uh another person into the conversation and i was reminded of this this morning by another very good sister young sister who is on faculty at howard university i'm sure everybody heard the news that uh my friends tanahasi coates and uh nicole hannah jones are joining howard university joining the faculty of howard university and it's a wonderful thing to have them there and i think it's also an opportunity as part of that wonderful thing for folks to again not look at individuals any of us, those two, uh, Professor Hunter and myself, as somehow outliers, but of representatives of the vast majority of folk who the social structure likes to curate in an attempt to kind of narrate how we should look at our institutions. And so I, I mentioned that as a background because uh, another member of the faculty, in fact, one of the newest members of the faculty, uh, two of the newest members in the history department, one, my former student, Natalie Pierre, who finished her PhD at NYU, was an undergrad at Howard. She is from Haiti, uh, born in Brooklyn, but her people are Haitian, raised in Haiti. She was in Haiti during the earthquake, 2010. We worried about her till we heard, got word that she was okay. And um, she'll be joining the faculty in the history department at Howard uh, this fall. Uh, right alongside her is another sister who came out of Howard named Ashley Robertson. Now, Ashley Robertson is an interesting sister. Uh, she, her husband, uh, their young son, Carter, they named her for Carter G. Woodson. She's hardcore in the genealogy, trained by some of the best, you know, advised and raised by people like Ida Jones, uh, the great Elizabeth Clark Lewis, uh, who uh, is at Howard University, uh, my friend and colleague, a real Jegna. And Ashley reminded us all this morning that today is the birthday of an institution builder who produced uh, young women like uh, Miss Avant-Garde uh, in terms of their undergraduate experience. And of course, that is the great Mary McLeod Bethune. Today is Miss Bethune's birthday. And of course, Ashley knows about that. And I, I, I resisted the urge to go pull a bunch of Bethune books, I only pulled two. And I wanted to, I pulled these two for two reasons. One, because they are excellent points of entry for young people or anyone of any age to really get a firm grasp on who Mary McLeod Bethune coming out of South Carolina is. Uh, what she did, how the institutions that she built and influenced, whether it be the Negro Division of the National Youth Act, Recovery Act, whether her work with Eleanor uh, Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt, she advised by presidents of the United States in the social structure context, but in the governance structure context, she herself coming out of South Carolina, her first teaching job was a place called Haynes Institute. Uh, that is the great Lucy Craft Laney. I mentioned Lucy Laney and I think about some of the other people, Modesta Simpkins and some of the other folks because they're South Carolinians, these Negroes. And I think about my friend Kathy Adams, a master teacher uh, down in South Carolina at Claflin um, University. And Miss Bethune saw how to conduct, to construct a an institution of higher education from Lucy Craft Laney. And she took those lessons to Florida 
And so one of the two books I'm going to mention on Miss McLeod Bethune's birthday is Mary McLeod Bethune in Florida. This is Ashley's book. For by Gwen Boyd, who was at one time the president of Delta Sigma Theta. And of course, Miss Bethune, Delta, there she goes, Mary McLeod Bethune. In fact, the sister who was with her the day she made transition, her personal secretary, sound like when y'all have Miss Bethune like walking and y'all, because there's very little video footage of her that survives. So you see the pictures and they say, you know, that you, you, you'll act like she was walking, stooped over, or been. she said she worked to the last day of her life. And then she told me when I was leaving, I'll see you in the morning. But I think she knew something because she told me to go out there and get the will and bring it out the safe. And she was thinking about re-signing it, uh, signing the will. She never got around to signing her will. But we want to talk about her last will and testament in a minute because, again, it's her birthday and we should take our moment to do this. Uh, but she said, Miss Bethune strutted. Miss <laughs> Bethune, she had a strut. And it's very interesting when you start talking about that. But Ashley does an incredible job of talking about how Miss Bethune built that institution and imposed on the United States of America and on the world, a compelling vision of who black people are. And so I encourage you all to get this book and I like it for those two reasons. Number one, it's very accessible. This is by something called the History Press. It's a, it's a press that does a lot of books on black folk in an accessible style. It's written by first rate scholars who are very used to being in conversation with communities. That's what we're doing here. And uh, again, I hesitate to urge. They got a stack of these history press books over there. They got one on Dorothy Porter Wesley, um, my friend Janet Sims Wood, who was for years at the Moreland Spengarn Research Center at Howard University. Uh, but this is the second one, and this covers the years uh, from 1936, I think, to 1948, if I'm not mistaken, when uh, Mary McLeod Bethune. Let me let me double check the dates here. 49, well, 48, 49, when Miss Bethune lived in Washington, D.C. Remember, she came up to help with the New Deal program. This is by my friend Ida Jones, the great Ida Jones. Ida E. Jones, uh, with a foreword by the Jegna Elizabeth Clark Lewis. These are Black women at Black institutions doing this work in the top level about a Black woman institution builder who built a university with a buck fifty on what was a garbage dump at the time and would not be denied, Mary McLeod Bethune. So again, the idea of the exceptional... Negro is destroyed when you look at in the context of our governance structures. What have we produced? Who are we to each other? What are our standards? And I mentioned, uh, let me just mention a couple of other things. I, I marked a couple of pages, wanted to mention. I just love, I mean, there's there's one picture of Mary McLeod Bethune sitting in front of her choirs. The girls are singing, the young women are singing. And I I, I will show you how this. I like this one because this is her with the, with, the, with the little girls. But look at this one right here. Here's Mary Bethune. Chocolate Mary Bethune sitting there. This one, this picture right here is from 1910 when she's the principal of the institute that would eventually bear that would bear her name. Here's another picture. I want to put her in context. We talk about the governance structure. Who are black folk to each other? Here she are. Here she is with some women that everybody should know. I'm gonna freeze here. Y'all can pause on YouTube. If you go back to narrative, you know Urias and them are gonna have all this footnoted, and then we go back. Oh, by the way, we're working because, as you say, Professor Hunter. We have over 70 numbered conversations, not counting the other ones. And this is just the first draft. This ain't even really the draft, right? Because now this stuff has been up, being uploaded on narrative. It's being annotated by a brilliant team. And the next stage is, remember, the September is the launch launch. So y'all spread the word about narrative. We're turning these into books. See? Well, that's a whole nother conversation. So, so we're going. But anyway, this picture right here. You know why I love this picture? I'm just going to show you. Like, this is here. Margaret Murray Washington 
that's Booker T. Washington's wife. I'm just mentioning Booker T because you know the name, but you may not know Margaret Murray. Here's Miss Bethune. Next to her is her Jegna, the great Lucy Crab Laney. Wow. Up here on the top, left to right. Ho ho. These two here, that's Charlotte Hawkins Brown. Where my finger is, y'all go look up Charlotte Hawkins Brown. Another, look up the Palmer Institute. She built a school. <laughs> and then next to her, my finger right here, that's Lugenia Burns Hope. She's the wife of John Hope, who was the president of Morehouse in Atlanta University. In Atlanta University, Eugenia, Eugenia Burns Hope. Those of you in Atlanta know when you go on the campus of what they call the AUC, the Atlanta University Center, and you walk over and you're going from Clark, Atlanta to up the hill to where Morehouse is, and you pass that bust of Du Bois to be on your right, and you're going up the hill, you pause at the grave of John Hope, the great president who brought Du Bois into the Atlanta University Center. Then you keep walking a little bit, you look over, you see the chapel, that's the, the chapel right there, you know, where Benjamin Mays and them, they use eyes Martin Luther King and them. Then you walk up a little bit, you look to the left, that's that bell that Larry Fishburne rang in school days, wake up right there. And then you look up and you see this white stone monument with a statue standing in the middle of a guy in academic regalia. That's Buck Benny, the great Benjamin Elijah Mays standing there. And in front of Mays' statue are is a little uh, crypt with two graves, Benjamin and Sadie Mays buried right there. And then beyond them is the dorm. Um, and in that dormitory, there's a, the roof is there. And that's where, after she was cremated, uh, the ashes of Lugenia Burns Hope were spread there. And so that's not unusual. Some universities, as we talked about in one of our sessions before, uh, the founders or major educators are buried on campus. That's not unusual. Black folk do that. In fact, Ms. Bethune is buried at Bethune Cookman. And uh, they just got a lot of, Hugh Gloucester is at Morehouse. Howard Thurman. Y'all go over to the narrative and look at this Howard Thurman. In fact, let me just, let me use that to pivot and then we'll move into what we say we're going to talk about today, but it's Miss Bethune's birthday, so we had to do this. Mary Bethune, if you've watched on narrative our extensive conversation on the great Howard Washington Thurman, then you know the impact of Howard Thurman on Miss Bethune's life. I, I'll leave aside, because this isn't really about Mary Bethune Day, but her long, deep friendship with Carter G. Woodson, uh, when Woodson passed in 1950, Miss Bethune published uh, her remarks on Woodson there in the Journal of, uh, no, Negro History Bulletin. Yeah, I won't, I'm pointing because I'm looking at the shelf with the Negro History Bulletin on it. When she says, I will always love Carter Woodson because he, he taught me to believe in myself. She was being overly gracious. She came out of South Carolina believing in herself. But uh, Howard Thurman talks about, in his autobiography, um, With Head and Heart, he talks about how, as a little boy, his mother would take him over to hear Miss Bethune talk, usually on Fifth Sundays, and how she just transformed him, and how she would raise money, and the black community was there, white folk would come, and she said, okay, we're going to take up this collection. And then the little children were uh, brought up. If they couldn't walk, they were brought up, and they could drop whatever they wanted to drop in the collection plate. They had a penny, a nickel, or something that wasn't money, you drop it in. And he said, every one of those children who came up, Miss Bethune would touch them on the head and say something to him. He said, I don't remember what she was said to me, but I know it transformed my life. And the reason I'm bringing that up in this context of her birthday today is because if I can put my hands and I can on it, these uh, there are five volumes of the Howard Washington Thurman papers. This is volume four. Um, the great Walter Earl Fluker, whose son is over the archives now at the Atlanta University Center, good brother, um, is, was director of this project. This is the only place in print 
that disappears, what I'm about to show you all. On the 23rd of May, 1955, Miss Bethune's funeral was held on the campus of Bethune-Cookman, Daytona Beach, Florida. Who gave the eulogy? Who had to rearrange his schedule, canceling a talk he's supposed to give at Bowdoin College. Bowdoin is a good school in Maine. In fact, but Benny went there. But Benjamin Elijah made a story for another day. My friend Eddie Gloud came out of uh, um, Moss Point, Mississippi. I know Eddie Gloud. Eddie went to Bowdoin. But um, this brother canceled that commitment because he had to come. He didn't fly. He traveled by train everywhere. He had to take the train to Florida. And this was, of course, a native son of Daytona Beach, Howard Thurman. And he gave the eulogy for Mary McLeod Bethune. It was, he never published it. There's only a recording of it. And they transcripted the recording in this volume. And he tells that story. He tells the story about, you know, her running the heads, running the hands over the heads. And he said this, he said, I have two simple things to say as I reflected upon the meaning of the life of Mother Bethune, who we call the second mother, by the way. And the first is this. She was able under the wild, widest possible variety of circumstances to turn all frustrations and all handicaps into shafts of burning light. I'm going to resist the urge to go any further than that. Mm. Because Mary Bethune, when she passed, the, her secretary said there were three things she asked me about just that week she passed. And then that last day, that last day I saw her, she may be going there and get the will out to say. So I know she was must have been thinking about it, but she didn't say she didn't feel bad. She felt like she had a little indigestion. She passed up a heart attack. She said she had two secretaries. Now, mind you, there was a beach in Florida named for Mary Bethune. That's where she used to have. She had a secretary over there at the beach named for her. Y'all got to read the life of Mary Bethune for real. It's just a teaser. In fact, Professor Hunter, we got to do Mary Bethune. Maybe we get Ashley and Ida and them and gather up, and, you know, and gang up on, on, on narrative and do it right. But uh, she said, I want you. I don't need two secretaries. Can you handle my business stuff? Yeah, because you do my personal stuff. Yeah. Okay, then. Yeah. And so that was it. And then the other thing she said, how's the biography going? She didn't write an autobiography, but there's several biographies of her. And one was like an as told to biography she was working on. Uh, Hope was the lady's name that she was working with. Now, just after she made transition, let me see, was it Ida or was it Ashley that published The Last Will and Testament? Ebony Magazine, and they've ran it several times, including the 1970s, the last time they ran it. She published her what they call her Last Will and Testament. She passed in May 55. And they published it later that year, 1950, August 1955. And Miss Bethune, if you get a chance, it's all over the internet. I'll, I'll, again, resist the urge to read it. Read what Mary McLeod Bethune gave to the world as her last will and testament. In fact, I'll just, let me just do one couple of lines. I can't leave or read a lot of it. Because she she wants, she said, I leave you love, I leave you hope, I leave you the challenge of developing developing confidence in one another, I leave you a thirst for education, I leave you a respect for the uses of power, I leave you faith, I leave you racial dignity, I leave you a desire to live harmoniously with your fellow men, I leave you finally a responsibility to our young people. But in, when she talks about having self-confidence, she says, I, I was, I don't want to mess up, see you know, read it. Go ahead, read it. Yeah, yeah, I gotta, I gotta find it. Oh my goodness, because Mary McLeod Bethune, man. Hold on, hold on for a second. Let me see if I can find it quickly. Because oh, here we go. This is what I leave you racial dignity. She says this. I've never been sensitive about my complexion, 
My color has never destroyed my self-respect, nor has it ever caused me to conduct myself in such a manner as to merit the disrespect of any person. I have not let my color handicap me. Despite the many crushing burdens and handicaps, I have risen from the cotton fields of South Carolina to found a college, administer it during its years of growth, become a public servant in the government of our country and the leader of women. I would not exchange my color for all the wealth in the world, for had I been born white, I might not have been able to do all that I've done or yet hope to do. Sit with that for a minute. All you people who think, going to play colorism, going to think that, okay, I'm black, but I need to talk a certain way and act a certain way. Miss Bethune said, shit, I'm black. And I'm one of them girls who y'all try to run off, you know. But you know what? I'm glad. Because had I been born white or close enough in color to it to a spot, I wouldn't have been able to do what, I mean, Mary Clyde Bethune got a lifetime of statements like this, but this whole idea, when she says, and here, here, I'll just, I'll just do the love because love is so beautiful, right? She says, I leave you love. Love builds. It is positive and helpful. It is more beneficial than hate. Injuries quickly forgotten pass away. Personally and racially, our enemies must be forgiven. Our aim must be to create a world of fellowship and justice where no man's skin, color, religion is held against him. Love thy neighbor is a precept, which could transform the world if it were universally practiced. It connotes brotherhood, and to me, brotherhood of man is the noblest concept in all human relations. Loving your neighbor means interracial, interreligious, and international. Now, don't mistake that for I'm going to bow down to white supremacy, because then she murks white supremacy through all the rest of it. I'm not talking about weak submission. In fact, this kind of love forces you to speak truth to power. And Miss Bethune spoke truth to power. In fact, Howard Thurman says in the eulogy, when Miss Bethune got rejected, she used that as fuel. She said, but he said, because she didn't base, now we go to the ways of knowing category. Mary McLeod Bethune, according to Howard Thurman and according to her own writings, but in speeches and, and her, her movement through the world, but Thurman says is that standing over her at the funeral. Oh, footnote, by the way, today, also the ritual for the great Frederick Humphreys. I know the ancestors, man. He wasn't even an ancestor. We talked about, I had that Florida A&M shirt on and I talked about Fred Humphreys a couple of weeks ago. Fred Humphreys made transition since we talked about Oh, my about, gosh. Yeah, his wake uh, was yesterday and the ritual today. The great Frederick Humphreys, one of the great educators in the history of the world during the period he was. The president of Tennessee State, my first two years at Tennessee State, and then he went home to Florida, Florida A&M. And he is known as one of the greatest one of the greatest college presidents, period. Also, they just had the ritual, in fact, for the great Samuel Myers, who lived to 101 years old. Sam Myers was the head of NAFIO, which is the uh, organization for higher education among black folk. But before that, he was the president of Bowie State College, uh, one of the most important educators. If these two, if you don't know these two names, then you should ask yourself why. Because now we're, we're in another mode now. We start thinking about higher education. And we need, we don't, don't get pulled off your square. In fact, uh, Earl Richardson, who had been the president of Morgan State University, another legend, uh, spoke at Sam Myers ritual the other day in Bowie, Maryland, here on the campus of Bowie State University in the Sam Myers auditorium, by the way, of the Martin Luther King building. And he said, you know, Myers passing marks the end of an era. And he started calling a roll of all those folks who were ancestors. And he, so Myers is a generation that took the baton from Mary Bethune and them, Lucy Craft Laney and them, who took the baton from uh, Charlotte Hawkins Brown and them. In other words, so I, I, I deliberately named three women because, again, the narrative somehow that black women aren't involved. That's why I showed you this picture, too. There's one other picture I'm going to show you very quickly. But as he said, as I was saying, 
Thurman says about Bethune when they rejected her, when she would, she would do coke, she would just walk the streets of Daytona. She would go different places and ask people for money. You need to donate to this. You need to come to my school. You need to come here and say, and if they said no, she said, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. God bless you and keep moving. Because Thurman said her strength didn't come from other people. Ways of knowing. Her strength came from beyond the place you could see with your eyes. For her, it was her Christian faith. We expand that in ways of knowing to say beyond that, the creator, the ancestors, whatever you believe animates us and moves us. That is our common source. So if people shade you, just don't get pulled off your square of truth. But I'm going to end with this because I want to mention Haiti one more time. In 1949, July 12th, 1949. July 12th, 1949, Miss Bethune traveled to Haiti, where she received the highest award the government of Haiti gives, the people of Haiti give, the Haitian Medal of Honor. Here she is wearing it around her neck with Dorothy Furby, who's another character, uh, person you should know, Dorothy Furby, Dr. Dorothy Furby. Uh, look at Miss Bethune. Bethune's no joke. She got the Haitian, she's the first woman to get the Haitian Medal of Honor. Professor Hunter, the other day, what was the phrase you used when we were in conversation and then you evoked it again when I watched your conversation? There was a, you said we should be better global citizens. How did you, how, how did you phrase that? I'm trying to remember. When you're talking about Haiti, what is our, what our obligation is to Haiti? I said we should be better diasporic citizens. There it is. Yes. And we see the precedent. See, if we become better diasporic, I, I just want to lean into my chills for a second. <laughs> you, you know, it's like you know that you're being guided by the ancestors. You know that this is something that is not driven by you. You know it. But every time we get together, it's just it's confirmed that there's something going on here. That's that right. if somebody said y'all got to keep going, I. I I don't know how we stop. Wow. Now, see, you just, mm. you know, it's so funny. Michel Foucault, the French intellectual, there have been a number of volumes of his lectures at the Collège du France, which has been published. And I was having this conversation recently with the great Paul Coates, Tanasi's father, uh, of course, the publisher and, and one of our partners, one of the members of our, of our collective. And we were talking about the possibility of and we've been talking about this since last year but now that things are shifting we really are jailbreaking y'all the future of education cannot be left to a handful of universities or even k-12 education just as we see our young sister avant-garde come out of her family the first word she got right is the one they missed in the spelling bee and she's sitting at home with her pops on the couch understand that it is the community that produces, that nurtures. All those freedom school students come out of the community and that the job of institutions is to receive that energy, is receive that initial grounding and continue to enhance it, which means the community should be asking the questions of the, of the teachers or the professors. What am, what's my child learning? I wanna come sit in, I wanna think. So what we're doing now is moving it back to where it has always been and, and lifting up the fact that we do this collectively and it's not a tuition based model It is, however, a model that requires an investment. So just like Mary McLeod Bethune is going door to door and now there's a Bethune College, Bethune Cookman University, 
with narrative, what we're doing is the same thing. This small investment is an investment in all of us. And then it opens up our capacity to just continue to build. So yes, when you say that, it reminds me of something Foucault said in the introduction. And I forget how many now. I won't, I, again, I'm not going to another room to look. They're probably about, at this point, maybe five or six volumes of the, uh, so far, there are more. Because they recorded all these things. They say Foucault would come into the College de France. And I've been to the College de France. In fact, the first time I went to Paris, I'm like, I got to go to the College de France. I got to go to Maslin. I got to go to Présence Africaine and across the street to La Matin, the publishers. And, then, you know, all these places. And I was with Theopalo Benga. Myself, Mario Beatty, Valethea Watkins, you know, he's our dissertation advisor. We took our dissertations to Paris because they ran him out of Congo with a civil war. Shout out to the United States and France. We know how y'all do them coup d'etats, but you can't kill us all and we're going to keep building. But at any rate, he was in Paris with his wife and we went, to, you know, take our stuff over there. And then we went and we went around. And so I got to go to the College de France. I want to see these rooms where Foucault was giving these lectures. Fascinated by this question, because, again, in the Western tradition, Intellectuals are highly respected. In African traditions, intellectuals are highly respected. Asian traditions, Native American traditions, you go around the world. But in the contemporary society, we are so socialized in a form of anti-intellectualism that if you talk more than three words, man, I don't want to hear. Can you put this in a TikTok? So me, when, I, when I'm dipping my toe in Twitter back and forth and I'm in conversation with somebody and then somebody wants to make a point with a meme, I'm open to that, but I also understand that's a shorthand, as they tell the children, use your words. But at any rate, Foucault said, you know, I would be given a lecture, and these are transcripts, and what we're going to do with our conversations is transcripts. They'll be edited, and they will be, well, just wait, you'll see. At any rate, this is why you got to join narrative, because we need to continue to, to generate this ability to, to, to build our institutional capacity. Foucault said, you know, I would come in, he'd come in, he'd go down, there'd be hundreds of people in a place that might supposed to seat 200, 250. It's like 400 some people in there. They jammed all the on. He would want to put his papers down and he had to move the tape recorders. They'd already put the tape recorders in. He moved enough space, put his papers down and he said, I go straight to work. And he said, by the end of it, I'd be exhausted. But he said, but it almost felt like it was like being an acrobat. It was like people were watching a performance, which is why you want to go back and read and think about these things. He said, because I would lecture often almost to the hour. And then I would finish. They, everybody would rush forward. This had the reporters say. They rush forward, click off the tape recorders, and everybody leave. He said, and in that instant, I would be alone. And I said, that was the moment when we opened up for a conversation of a different kind, one question or one comment could have set the whole thing right. But I hadn't left the space for that. Professor Hunter, when you said, I don't see how we can stop, you captured in there one comment, like a flash of lightning illuminating the entire enterprise the core of what we're trying to do. In fact, what we're doing, we're in the spirit of Mary McLeod Bethune couldn't stop. Her thermos and her funeral, she could, she because she was kept up by something else. She wasn't kept up by trends. She wasn't kept up by cancel culture. She wasn't kept uh, kept up by the latest shiny thing or the social structure trying to dictate shine and people thinking it's their idea. No. I am not, to use the words of Sean Carter, looking at you dudes. I'm looking past you. Because the thing that animates me is past me. So let me just mention one other thing since we've seen each other. 
uh, and this happened yesterday. My friend Erica Asakoye, who was the first director of Philadelphia Freedom Schools, we did we tried to do it ourselves in 1999 in the school district. I was working for the school district full time. And at the end of that summer, myself, the great Dr. Aisha Imani, uh, who is the uh, CEO and the principal and the leader of uh, the um, Sankofa Freedom Academy, our K-12 Freedom School in uh, Philadelphia, uh, also responsible for Imhotep uh, High School in Philadelphia. Again, these African-centered schools continue to echo. We, at the end of that summer, we said, now we need somebody full-time working out of the community who is also working out of the school district who becomes the bridge figure because no institution we don't control should be in control of our institutional efforts. So while we were all in the school district side, we wanted somebody who was also on the school district side, but who's also really beholden to the community organizations, the Friends Neighborhood Guild, the Women's Christian Alliance, uh, uh, Congreso de Latinos Unidos, um, Asians Americans United, all the community organizations in Philadelphia who came together to make the Freedom School thing work. So we recruited Erica, Erica Asakoye, Woods then, now married name Asakoye, uh, Erica, brilliant sister, another HBCU graduate, uh, went to Lincoln, then Howard, then got a master's degree at Harvard just because, you know, why not? And uh, again, not the aspiration, though. Again, reading and writing is reading and writing, no matter what you do. And all three of them institutions and all the rest of them don't amount to what we're doing, because, again, this ain't tuition based. This ain't ACT and SAT school and grades based. This is desire based. And um, so she she was the first one. We got her in the year 2000. And since then, she's done a whole lot of other stuff. Well, she, uh, again, working with Philadelphia Freedom Schools this summer, um, her niece is in town and her niece wanted to go to pay respects to some of the ancestors who are buried in Arlington National Cemetery. You know, I ain't been leaving the house. So Erica's like, will you ride with us? See, I ain't been out to Arlington in a minute. Okay, I'll go. for you, of course, you know, we, we ride or die. That, you know, we don't even get no closer than that. It's like me and, uh, and Ajua. You know, we, we going. All right, here we go. We get out there. We pay respects to folk. We see Thurgood Marshall, you know, because he, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, all them buried in the Supreme Court justice, all there, you know, uh, Potter, not Potter Stewart. Yeah, Potter Stewart there, but um, Brendan, all them cats is right there. And it's funny, well, another story. Chappie James is up that way. Then we went to see Joe Lewis. I mean, we couldn't see everybody because we're only out there for a couple of hours and there's a lot of people out there. We'll, you know what? We should do one on Arlington. We'll do one on Arlington because because there used to be a plantation. So, in fact, Shanice was a park ranger out there. In fact, these sisters here, Ashley was a ranger. Ashley was a park ranger. So a lot of black women work for the U.S. Park Service through the pipeline created at black institutions who then turn around and train other black women. In fact, my friend, Joy Kennard, whose father, John Kennard, founded the uh, first black museum in the Smithsonian, which isn't the National Museum of African-American Art uh, History, NMAC, but is the Anacostia Community Museum in Southeast DC, right up the street from Freddie Douglas's house. Uh, Joy, Dr. Joy Kennard, another HBCU pr product, is now at the Charles Young House in Ohio. She used to run the district that has Mary McLeod Bethune's house and Carter G. Woodson's house, black woman story. But at any rate, yeah, Shanice was a, a ranger at um, when she was an undergrad at Arlington. So we out there, so we had to come back. And I was telling them about the house and this kind of thing. And so it's getting close to the hour. We gotta get back. And so we're about to leave and we walk past the trestles, the, the, the train trestles where the people, the guides. And I had on a Tuskegee shirt. You know, some of y'all seen that. I've worn, I've worn that shirt, particular Tuskegee shirt a couple of times. And it's, it just says Skegee, right? So if you know, you know, which is what the sister who are Africans to other people who are Africans to each other. Because damn near everybody working in Arlington that we saw was black or brown, as you can imagine, right? 
all the guards. And which is why I said, if we want to know where somebody is, we ain't got to look at somebody who just has uh, information on their vest or shirt. Just ask the black people where the black people are, because we know who we are to each other. So we asked the brother, hey, man, where's your Lewis? Are oh, you down over there by the tomb of the unknown soldier? Go down this road right here. Man. Yeah, okay, cool. Because we already know, because I know black people be asking you where the black people are, right? So the sister sees me. She says, Skiggy, if you know, you know. I said, that's right. She said, you see Chappie James? Yeah, he, he's buried up there by Thurgood Marshall. Yeah. I said, listen, we about to leave, but Mega Evers, I forget, is he down? She tells us how to get to Mega Evers. If we had started there, what I'm about to tell y'all next would not have happened. This is how ancestors work, Professor Hunter. We've been out there a couple of hours. And we did the obligatory stuff. John Kennedy, you know, William Taft is out there. It's kind of thing. So we we go across the road from where the parking is and then come back toward the city where the little markers are, the military markers. Is, so that's most basically what's out there. Where Mega Evers is. My father is buried in one of those in the Veterans Cemetery in Middle Tennessee. So we're, as we're walking down the steps, we can see Mega Evers' grave. A brother in a, a military uniform is walking up and two women are coming up behind him. They look to be not elderly, but older. So the brother was, hey, you know, black folk. How you doing, brother? Fine. How you doing? Hey, sis, how you doing? Thank you for your service, brother. He said, yeah. I said, uh, you down visiting some relatives? Because I'm assuming... Y'all went to see Mega Evers, but I'm, you know, protocol. I'm not going to assume that you went to see Mega Evers, except he, they would go. They did go to see Mega Evers, except they didn't go to see Mega Evers because he was a historical figure. Professor Karen Hunter, um, everybody watching. <laughs> these were not Mega Evers' children. Charles Evers. When we talk about Charles Evers, <laughs> we talked about Charles Evers this summer. There he is. Charles Evers. Charles Evers lived to be 97 years old. He passed away last year. We had a conversation about Charles Evers. We talking about Mississippi. This was his son, two daughters. He said, <laughs> the brother said, I, we just came down here to see my uncle before we left. Wait, what? What? I said, I said Charles Evers, your daddy? Said, yeah. I said, come on, man. Charles Evers, your father, your pop just passed. How old was he? 90, he said, 97. You know what they had done? They had just come from over the hill where they put the cremains of veterans. Charles had asked to be cremated and he just got interred yesterday in Arlington National Cemetery and three of the, the nephew, two, two of Mega Evers' nieces, after they put their father in the wall, came down the hill to see their uncle. Now, that's not the end of it. Because we got to talking, and you know, as we talked about, y'all go to narrative and look at our conversation. Charles Evers was a complicated figure, man. I mean, he went far right at one point. He really independent. He he, he was all over. I mean, he was the mayor. You know, he and Mega and them, and they talk about going to try to register the vote. You got to read the life of Charles Evers. Go watch our conversation. You, you. But we said so. One of the sisters was like, you know, yeah, we figured we had to get daddy up here. We wanted to do it right. So, yeah, we figured, you know, COVID, you know, you couldn't come. Now you could come. But you came today. Man, that's crazy. So when y'all headed back, we talking. Oh, we going back. We got to drop her off in Atlanta. Then we headed back to Mississippi. Okay. Oh, I said, so y'all ain't fly. Y'all drove. Oh, yeah, we drove. We like to enjoy our trips. These are Southerners now. 
these these are all southerners talking to each other right and so we're gonna talk about the green book in a minute too all this gonna tell the lovecraft country believe it in that and so as we're having this conversation <laughs> you know, as we're having this conversation uh they said they said uh yeah we had to drive and then uh the brother said yeah you know we had to bring daddy back in you know, bring him up here in style and the sister said yeah because you know my daddy drove nothing but cadillacs so we had to bring him up here in the cadillac and they pointed to the <laughs> and there on the street is a brand new white cadillac <laughs> These children and brought their daddy said he kept a Cadillac. And so, so we just laughing, right? The rest of the story. Here comes about maybe 20 or so white people with all matching white t-shirts. Most of them children. And by children, I would say the youngest may have been six or seven. Oh, look like a bunch of teenagers. Look kind of like high school students, maybe some middle students. And the adults would probably look like they might have been in their 30s or 40s. And there were a couple who may have been in their 50s around my age. So clearly it looks like a group that's of children who are on a trip who've been chaperoned. They had on white shirts that said Macedonia Church. Macedonia, I think it was Baptist, Mississippi. <laughs> Africana studies, conceptual categories. The first category, social structure. Who are Africans to other people? The governance structure. Who are Africans to each other? They walk up as we're taking a selfie. One of the kind of 30-something young brothers, guys, is like, you know, Oh, y'all get in the picture. I take I'll take y'all picture. Okay, so I give them my phone. They take our picture. Me, Erica, her niece, uh, Madison, and the three, you know, niece, nephew, two nieces of Mega Evers, children of Charles Evers. We take a picture. It's very nice. Thank you. Thank you. So the brother says, Do y'all know who Mega Evers is? To a person, the children. Oh almost to a person, the adults. Except the two older ones were like, oh, yeah, oh, okay. And so I'm not mad. I'm not happy. I'm black. So <laughs> I don't care. Miss Bethune, love God. I love God. But my attitude is a little different. I leave you love too, Miss Bethune, and I love you. My love for them is righteous indignation. So, you know, we can, we, that's what the governance structure is. We got room for everybody to argue and debate and digress. That's why I'm loving Ta-Nehisi and Nicole going to be around because we're going to have some hella wonderful agreement and disagreement. And it's going to be all propelled with the idea that we all training our young people. We got to do that. That's what narrative is about. We all don't agree and disagree. So anyway, you know, so I'm really indifferent. But I'm like, oh, wait a minute, wait till tomorrow. We talk about this, right? Hmm. So the guy who took the picture says, well, I'm from Alabama. What does both of me? <laughs> right. But they but they live in Mississippi. So it's okay. So so then the children start telling them a little bit. We say, hey man, y'all be safe. All right. And of course, it reverts to the governance structure long enough for us to walk away as they each of them say to us, as we say to them, Y'all be safe. Safe travels back home. Traveling mercies is old folk, you say. And they said, uh, yeah, y'all go with God. Y'all get home safe too. These black people with governance. Then they revert back and they start start helping them understand who their uncle is and who their father is. So as we're walking back to the car, I say, you know what's funny about that? I don't put that on the children. But do you know that every plane that goes out of Jackson, Mississippi and comes into Jackson, Mississippi, comes and goes out of the Medgar Wiley Evers International <laughs> Airport? <laughs> so unless they've never been on a plane <laughs> in Mississippi and Jackson, 
But you know, it speaks to the abject ignorance that people are comfortable sitting. Come on now. That you could go to a school, live on the street, have a whole ass town and an airport named for somebody that you don't even know. That's one of the first things I, I talk to my students about. Like, who's the president of the college? Who's the college? Who is the founder of this college? You need to know. Like, you, you're spending money. The first thing you should do is know the place that you're in. But this, this is hmm, this is what's wrong with this country. And they want to talk about critical race theory. Oh, my goodness. In fact, you know what's so funny? You said it, President. Because if that whole thing would have been broadcast, the critics would have said out of the social structure, see, y'all causing division. You trying to act like they should be ashamed because they don't know who Megger Evers is. They should be ashamed. You know why he's buried in Arlington? The man was a veteran. He was a veteran. His brother was a veteran. Jeremiah Wright is a veteran. Y'all always in there, unless some of y'all gonna spill some blood to defend that rag that you will never see me pledge to. And I don't give a damn because citizenship ain't about that unless it is. And if it is about that, then what Misha Green previewed in Lovecraft's country? Oh, hell no. That's just a, uh, that's a forecast. <laughs> Do you understand? And that's why, well, no, let me just. Okay. Let's go. Let's go. And let's and uh, and for those of you who have not seen the Dick Gregory, uh, the one and only Dick Gregory um, documentary, yes. Meg Rivers uh, is featured prominently. I learned some things about the man. First of all, that he was, I already knew he was a badass. But the which that he, you know, was not about, you know, he wasn't having it. And we, 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 we mythological, you know, there's a mythology around our civil rights leaders as being these docile eunuchs. Right. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, they, they, they are, you know, oh, you know, you know, not Mega Evers. Mega Evers would, would, um, yeah, handle his business is all. Handle his business. And if that coward bothered and bathed the vet with wedding across the street in the bushes, shot him in the back, pump. He would have got lit up because Evers had his stuff in the trunk. Mega Evers stays strapped. Y'all talked to, again, my very good friend, the great Dory Ladner, Joyce Ladner, who died with him before he went and was assassinated, who was part of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. But you talked to Dory. You talked to Mama Dory. Mega Evers was no joke. And him and Dick Gregory. And Gregory would have probably been there that night gotten that phone call y'all watch the documentary you got to watch the one and only dick gregory as we talked about i mean a brilliant piece of work shout out to the gregory family uh to mama lil to all the children uh christian of course who was the driving force you know I, after i saw it you know i texted uh Yohansi and and ayana the two children i'm close to you know the youngest and i'm like man you did your pops right because they let him talk and we talked about that last week. So y'all can go back and look, but you, you got to watch the group. And then, of course, and we're going to talk about it in a minute. We might even be able to weave in Summer of Soul. But um, the the question <laughs> of <laughs> the, the question of what is happening now. In fact, let's just pause here so we can set it up right. Set it up right. In our Africana Studies framework, we have those six categories. And the first category, of course, social structure, who are Africans to other people, that applies anywhere in the world. We understand that race is one of the defining characteristics in the contemporary world. It is not the only one. In fact, this is the latest issue of Monthly Review. Uh, and I try to read everything. This is interesting. Uh, there's an article in here called How Social Classes Influence uh, Influence Political Life, which is very interesting. Vincente Navarro, who was at Johns Hopkins, emeritus professor at uh, Pompeu Faber University. Very interesting. He talks about the fact that if you give people, if you ask them whether they're upper, middle, or lower class in the United States, Professor Hunter, we already know the answer to this, but 
what what which one of the three do you think people pick? If we ask people, yeah, just ask random people. I think most people think they're middle class. That's exactly right. And he says that, right? No surprises there. He says, but when you introduce another option, are you upper, middle, working, or lower class? What do most people pick? Probably working. Exactly. And he says, when you match the numbers up in terms of what people make, if you put upper class, he says $100,000 or more, you have most of the people going to say middle class. Some are going to say upper class. 75000 to 99000 most of those people are going to say middle class, and you see more say working class. 50000 to 74999 it's not quite evenly split between working and middle. It gets to 30000 to 49000 before you see even a little sliver of lower class. And then 20000 to 29000 still not quite a lot of people say lower, they say working over middle. Look at it. Mm. You see that the black is lower. People who ain't making no money <laughs> still won't say they lower class. You understand? They'll say working class if you give them the option. But if you don't put working class in, they'll say middle, as you say, no matter how low you go in terms of money. That is because the socialization in this country, this hyper-capitalist country, even as wealth inequality has exploded during this pandemic, continues to have people under the illusion, two illusions. One, that somehow their reality in terms of material conditions isn't what it is. And number two, that perhaps they can't do anything about it. We can intervene. This is what Ms. Bethune was saying. This is what, and that man McLeod Bethune led voting registration and voting drives in Florida in the 1930s and 40s. Said, and ran up against the Klan. Come, the straight Klan. Come on, Professor Hunter. Come on. I mean, we've seen the straight clan come back now, but not in the way it was then. Let's not pretend that what we face now is somehow worse than what she faced. And this is before the voting rights cases busting up the white primaries. This is before Albright and Nixon. This is before Fred Gray and them, but not, uh, not Fred, Fred Gray was a lawyer, uh, uh, Dr. Gamillion in Tuskegee, Gamillion versus Lightfoot. This is before the great, you know, cases, the, uh, the Cats and Bats case. This is before the Voting Rights Act. They are war. And guess what? Miss Bethune is like, yeah, that's all you got? All right, let me say my prayer. Pow! Now what you think? No words. This is what you're going to fight. You got to be fortified. So yes, that's right. So I mentioned that to say that the social structure narrative then begins to harden in societies around the idea of a we, of a collective identity. In the United States, that we is anchored in settler colonial mythology our founding fathers. We're better than that. This is not the vision of the founding fathers. All of this delusional. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me be a little bit more charitable. I can hear Miss Bethune. All of this aspirational. Yes, aspirational. That's better than delusional. <laughs> Malcolm would say delusional. I'll say aspirational. In other words, but, but make no mistake, it's something you want to be true. It has never been true. So when you say this country continues to make mistakes, my response is, how do you define mistakes? This is going according to plan, which is why we can predict what comes next. So I'm just setting it up that way. So in that conversation, um, in a, now that's the United States. You go to a place like Haiti, they too have a founding mythology because these all aren't, aren't all the same people. So when you look at Haiti, 
the social structure question, who are Africans or other people, we widen that lens out to look at the global circumstances that create Haiti, enslavement, settler colonialism, inter-European conflict. And then we ask the governance structure question, who are these Africans to each other? And we see somehow they are able to build enough unity, initially unity in opposition to oppression, to create a modern black state. Now that in itself is a remarkable achievement, but to sustain that state over centuries when the social structure has basically taken a sworn oath to try to kill you up to uh, July the 10th, 2021, <laughs> when your propped up prime minister asked for the United States to intervene and on cue as if they are like, roll sound, roll camera, here, here they come again. The playbook, first thing you do is call them wild. In fact, let me just go back. Let me just take 10 seconds because, you know, we could all write these stories in the New York Times. Let's just go to the uh, first paragraph. After 24 hours of wild gun battles with suspects in the assassination of Haiti's president, the nation's authorities announced the arrest of 20 people and called on the United States to send troops to help protect crucial infrastructure. You could have wrote that last year, year before, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Audit. You start with wild, lawless. You move to the nation's authority. Told y'all it's 11 elected officials in Haiti. And then prime minister and the other guy was vetted. One of them was on faculty in New York. He went to the new school for his PhD. The other is a medical doctor who was in charge of the cholera out, uh, response. And you know what happened in Haiti with cholera and the UN and all that mess. Not to mention that Venezuela gave them some money and everything got embezzled under the guy they killed. And, and as I mean, come on now. And the OAS, tell you, Organization of American States came in to talk and they figured out, okay, this guy here, we can trust him being the prime minister. And they say 18 of the 20 that they nabbed are Colombians. I'm like, wait a minute, hold on, Colombia? What Colombia got to do with it? The president of Colombia said the OAS should intervene. The UN Security Council met earlier this week. They tried to figure out, Joe Biden talking about, we're not going to send anybody in. Man, come on. Y'all know y'all had this conversation and gamed it out of the State Department and in the security room, and y'all gonna figure out what y'all gonna do. Finally, the Colombians, come on now. Do you know one of the biggest things that goes on in the illicit, there are two illicit, well, there are a number of illicit things, but come out of Haiti that the Haitian people don't want, don't need, and trying to fight against, but people keep propping them up. One of them is sex trafficking. Others, cocaine. The Colombian cartel the narcos love haiti because they could fly the stuff into haiti and then from there send it to your place but at any rate the point is that all of this is being scripted but in haiti when you ask the governance question question who are these africans to each other you see the ndo okay they trying to invade some of them trying to do good some of them just trying to get paid uh shout out to the clinton foundation you have others but black people are trying to live they want their country to succeed and so they're not trying to break up Haiti. They want Haiti to be free. This is why Randall Robinson in a book he wrote after the debt, after the reckoning, and a book that we then uh, picked from Freedom School one year to read and invited him back. And he came back and spent time with our young people. It was called Haiti, An Unbroken Agony. And one day, maybe I'll wear that shirt. We had the Haiti Libet, Liberté, you know, and we did the whole history of Haiti in Freedom Schools that summer. Because, of course, that has a Philadelphia connection another time. Again, go to narrative, look at the conversations we had. But I raise that because the idea of who we are, who is the we, is going to look different in Haiti than it does in the United States. And for a long time, who we are in the United States, when Black people said we, 
there's a critical mass of black people, regardless of where they are in the class structure, who included in that we, Africa and the Caribbean. You saw Miss Bethune with the highest honor they give in Haiti around her neck that she got in 1949. And in that last will and testament, she talks about that global commitment to humanity. And she names Asia and Africa and Latin American and indigenous people. In other words, when she says love, her love is not tied up and to the four corners of a flag with stars and stripes on it. And that's a different type of thing. And that becomes an act of heresy in a social structure that says, love must mean you love George Washington. You love me. You love what I say, right or wrong. My country, right or wrong. No, okay. Well, then we getting off the we boat. And so anytime you start thinking about, let's go to the next category, ways of knowing. The ways of knowing category is about spiritual ways of knowing it's about intellectual philosophical ways of knowing we didn't want to say philosophy we don't say religion those words are too small it's like how do you conceive of thinking about yourself in the world think about the nature of reality all those kind of things but what you see coming out of ways of knowing are different ways of grappling with this question of who we are as human beings and as people of african descent there are some very particular ways that come out of africa that aren't the same as when they came out of africa but they co-mingle with the experiences since then for those who were in the diaspora and they become different, complex, often contradictory, often uh, resonant chords that congeal together and have a consensus about ways of knowing in the world. And they animate us. One of the things Howard Thurman says at Mary McLeod Bethune's funeral is, you know, Miss Bethune um, um, understood. No, 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 no. I'm mixing something up. I, I'll come back to that in a second because uh, I, I'm trying to remember now the source that I was just reading this the other day. Uh, the Oh, of course, my man. Very good brother. This is a brilliant book. In fact, I recommend this is another book I recommend. My friend Errol Henderson has written a book called The Revolution Will Not Be Theorized. Cultural Revolution in the Black Power Era. Big, thick book. SUNY Press. One of the things Errol talks about is we often talk about black power figures. Malcolm X, Queen Mother Moore, so many others. We talk about them as political figures, but we don't often think about them as intellectuals or as political theorists. And he said they absolutely were, most of them, political theorists as well. He says one of the challenges that you see in so-called revolutionary theory among Black people in the diaspora, particularly the United States, thinking now even about uh, Summer of Soul, which you know maybe I'll tie it to this, tie it to that a couple of ways, but we'll come back to this. But um, no, we can leave it right here where it is right now, because when you see, a, 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 in fact, let me just pause here and ask you, Professor Hunter, um, you saw it. We talked about it a little bit, right? Yes. For those of you who haven't seen Summer or So, will you tell them what that is before I say anything else? <laughs> you want me to tell them? Yeah. All right. Yeah, we um, both saw it. So, so at the same time that there was a Woodstock, Black people over, was a six-week period? Mm -hmm. 3,000 folk uh, went to what is now uh, Marcus Garvey uh, Park uh, in Harlem. That's what it's called now, right? Marcus Garvey Park in Harlem. Yeah. Uh, came together for a concert that brought everybody. We're talking gospel, jazz, we talk, Roach, Max Roach. We're talking Jesse Jackson. We're talking uh, Gladys Knight, the fifth dimension. I mean, everybody. Stevie Wonder playing the drums. Young Stevie, sexy Stevie Wonder. Sexy Jesse, too. I was like, okay, Jesse. I saw you out there. You're capable for Jesse. No question. Uh, <laughs> but no. yeah, no, and, and, and was somehow lost for for 50 years in the basement of somebody That's what they say but yeah but you you said you were using snippets oh, from cool. that concert yeah, in your classes so it wasn't lost. no it wasn't lost i mean yeah. it, maybe the footage wasn't the footage some of the footage had been seen 
Okay. A lot of that footage you saw, I saw, we all saw. If you see the documentary Summer of Soul, maybe that's the first time why it has been seen by a lot. But some of that footage had trickled out over the years because a couple of those performances, Nina Simone, for example, I've shown that every year in my Africana Studies classes. And we're going to come back to uh, uh, Cinnamon, where you're going to run to, Cinnamon, where you're going to run to, a ran to the rock. Rock to hide me, ran to the rock. We're gonna we're gonna talk about Nina Simone in a minute and Cinnamon in the context of Lovecraft Country. But the whole idea, the the one thing I just want, you know, when they were talking about going to the moon because that was the same year. How about black people like we need food and resources? Come on, y'all talking about the moon? How that? Can we eat the moon? Can we eat the moon? (laughs) Like. I'm like, you know, putting things in context. And I think about now all of the all of the so-called billionaires getting on rocket ships for five, you know, millions of dollars for five minutes in space. You know, millions of dollars, people getting seats to go to space. And we can't figure out the space that we're in right now and make it viable for everybody. Um, you had you had our brother Cornell West. Let me say not we. Them. Yeah. No, hey, as Bethune, we all on the ball. If it blow up, if it's hell below, we all gonna go. As you had our friend Cornell West, our brother, talking about that on the narrative side. If y'all on narrative, y'all saw that conversation between Cornell West and Karen Hunter. So, I mean, and of course, when you think about uh, um, um, Curtis Mayfield and Freddie's Dead, the song we know, uh, you know, when Curtis Mayfield says, you know, we can deal with rockets and dreams, but reality, what does it mean? Don't be misled because Freddie's dead <laughs> or think of Fred. That's what he says. Right. And of course, years later, sign of the times, Prince says, silly, you know, when a rocket ship explodes and everybody's still trying to fly. Yeah. You know what? These people dealing with rockets. And of course, during that period, the summer of soul, during the period of those concerts, worst that 1969, shortly thereafter, you have a young brother in his 20s named Gil Scott Heron, a rat that bit my sister Nell. But Whitey's on the moon. Hmm. Her arms and legs began to swell and Whitey's on the moon. <laughs> in other words, y'all, you know, he said, you know, I, I think I'll send these doctor bills, air mail special. And then you hit a sister in the crowd. To Whitey on the moon. <laughs> in other words, y'all not going nowhere, Branson. Y'all not going nowhere, Bezos. We, uh, hell no. But to be very clear about it, we have to understand that the concept of evading responsibility is very deep in the social structure of imperialism. And it's also very uh, deep in the concept of what you do after you've gone everywhere you can go, but you still want to create markets to create more profit for yourself. In fact, Kwame Nkrumah, you know, one of his later books called it Neocolonialism. That's the last stage of imperialism, building off V.I. Lenin, but then saying no, imperialism ain't the last stage, brother. Neocolonialism, that's what's going on in Haiti. Two people talk about neoliberalism. We talked about neoliberalism a few sessions back. We have a conversation. The whole idea that you're going to subjugate these people to your wishes. And so while people are looking at Jim Psaki and Joe Biden or what the United States is going to do, while the New York Times talking about chaos and sending the army in, while the president of Columbia is saying to the Organization of American States, another client organization, you need to come in here now. While all that's going on, ask yourself a very basic question. Did Fruit of the Loom and Levi Strauss, both who have profit-making factories in Haiti, did they close their doors? 
the answer to that question will do you a lot better than trying to figure out which of these was Leon Charles or Matthias Pierre or Claude Joseph or Clement Noel or these cat these characters who were now down there now saying I'm the prime minister I'm the judge okay yeah that's all that stuff that's sock puppets the sock puppet conversation coming out the social structure ask yourself in that same social structure did Levi Strauss and Fruit of the Loom them draws y'all bought at Walmart did the price go up <laughs> no okay then carry on we don't give a damn who the prime minister is don't close the factory <laughs> so and that's not d or r it's not democratic republican that's not trump or biden that's not Ob that's not obama or clinton that's no at that point your job is to keep the factories running understand that let's hold a conversation for another day we talked about that a little bit but so in summer of soul that documentary we see and this is what errol is talking about in the revolution that will not be theorized there is political philosophy there. You mentioned it in terms of just regular folk who are there. And by the way, by the way, anytime you got a festival that takes place over weeks and you got 50,000 people show up, it's not forgotten. Let's just, let's scrub ourselves of this language. 50,000 each week. What is that? 50,000 each week. Mm -hmm. No question. And in fact, it's so funny when we saw Aminata uh, Mosika, uh, who we know as Abby Lincoln, uh, encourage y'all to go, mm. Mm, no, I see. I don't okay. know. I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna do it because they too far. They way over there. Uh, there's a there's a, she, Abby Lincoln, the great jazz artist at the time, married to Max Roach, the great jazz artist uh, who called jazz a four letter word again. Ways of knowing. I'm not gonna let y'all pigeonhole me in this little four letter word called jazz. But at any rate, uh, she had an African name as well. I'm an Mosika, and uh, she wrote in an issue of Black World about you know the black woman's struggle the cultural struggle how it's part of the black community struggle again you know some people might say well, it's an intersectional analysis yeah if you look at uh race class and sex as categories people somehow live separately no to create intersectionality you got to divide it up in the first place and i'm not going to do that i think we can be very complicated very contradictory have real robust debates and discussions and move forward from the point of departure in a governance formation that we are we so the idea that somehow I would side with white men because they're men is so utterly absurd in the face. Anyway, let's not even get into that. But the point, I mean, like, it's just silly. But we're not going to talk about it. So anyway, watching Max Roach and Abby Lincoln perform mm. reminded me of another day in that park. Uh, no, this, this, this was, yeah, it was Garvey. It wasn't Garvey. It was Central Park. It was Garvey. I remember this because it was the year Max Roach made transition and they had the funeral and I missed the funeral by one day. We were in Kemet. We were in Egypt and I was busting my tail because, you know, we've been we've been away for now a couple of weeks, two and a half weeks. And I'm in Philadelphia at the time living in Philly, commuting to, to, to D.C., but we flew into JFK. And so normally I would come into JFK and I'd take the train back into town, whatever, and, and go to D.C. I'm sorry, to Philly. But this time, you know, I arranged to get, get one of my friends pick me up. Yeah, come get me. Why? Because I'm, I'm going to spend the night because I miss Max Roach's funeral, but they're going to have a tribute to Roach in the park. So I'm watching this footage and I'm not there in 69, I'm four years old, but I'm there the year Max Roach passed because the tribute was supposed to feature anchor be anchored by abby lincoln who of course they had once been married and this is part she had gone to the funeral you know after the funeral she wasn't feeling up to performing so i went 
And again, movement and memory. The movement and memory category asks, how did or do black people remember this moments in time, historical figures, people like that? I stood there with thousands of other people and watched, not Abby Lincoln, who I was hoping would perform, but I understand you were elder, this was your man's, and y'all y'all go back and get the 1960 album with Max Roach, Abby Lincoln, Babatunde Olotunji on it. Um, we insist the Freedom Now suite. Oh my God, oh my God. Anyway, she didn't perform, but she deputized another sister to sing in her stead. So we all stood there and listened to Cassandra Wilson out of Jackson, Mississippi. Who does know who Megan Evers is? <laughs> Jackson State College, Jackson State University performed instead of her Jegna, Abby Lincoln. It was brilliant. It was just a beautiful thing. But I'm saying not to say that these things are not forgotten. That's why we created the movement and memory category. How did or do we remember that? Could they be better remembered? Yes. Are there many people who never knew that that happened who have now been introduced to it? Absolutely. But if you watch that documentary and you listen very carefully, what you will hear is the governance structure. What you will hear are ways of knowing, correct entry and exit. The governance structure, for example, the black church. When uh, uh, Billy Davis Jr. and Marion McCoo are sitting there, both of whom you've had conversations with, public facing conversations, radio, you put it on YouTube, having these conversations. And Marilyn McCoo is like, you know, well, Billy came out of St. Louis, he came out the church. So he knew all about those chords and those structures. So while people thought we might be white because of what we were singing about, the way we was putting that thing together, that came out of the church. I'm like, see? See, up, up and away in my beautiful balloon. Or one of our favorites together, one less spell to answer, one less egg to fry, one less man to pick up after. All I do is, and then you hear them come in, crying. She's saying, y'all thought we was white? Listen. And she tells it in the documentary, said Davidson. And she said, for us coming out of the West Coast, coming out what we was doing, the fifth dimension, when the moon, black people are like, yeah, okay, that's cool. <laughs> uh, hey, man, play that shit again. <laughs> she said, this was like a command performance. We are in Harlem. These are our people. And they're not just there as performers. I'm going to say exactly what Errol is saying with regard to the political figures of the time. And apply it a little bit to the cultural figures of the time. And Jesse is there, of course. But but Stevie don't need no coaching in this. These are also political figures because they're talking about black culture. They're talking about black politics. They're talking about the importance of coming together. They're talking about all that. So this is not and the original title, the way I understand it from reading some of the stuff and hearing Quest Love and talk, was Black Woodstock. It was like, nah. Because well, it ain't no Black Woodstock. It's Black Woodstock in the social structure. And I wish we could say that Woodstock was the white soul fest but guess what we don't need to make direct correlative comparisons because it ain't no we so stop trying to narrate us by your standards and we'll stop to try stop trying to narrate you by our standards and we can all live in this settler colony that you committed violence on but on these renegotiated terms which brings us to the peace that we came here to discuss and we just get into it but i think we can get this make this work and that's lovecraft country for many people when we say Lovecraft country, y'all be like, wait, what? So if you don't mind, Professor Hunter, help us understand, because I think you were one of the first people I saw talking about this when the news broke. Oh, Michigan, yeah. can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. The uh, creator of Lovecraft country, which is an adaptation of a book 
uh, but she completely remixed it into uh, what I think was a groundbreaking uh, series. I mean, just, oof. So HBO, who brought us Game of Thrones for some reason, you know, <laughs> able to put all that money into dragons, even though they destroyed <laughs> anything. That's because our, anyway, I, I have a whole, I'm really mad at George R.R. R. Martin. Finish your damn book so that this didn't have to happen. Anyway, um, your series, they decided not to renew for a second season, despite the ratings, despite the attention, despite the critical acclaim, despite all of the amazing um, performances, they mm -hmm. decided that, uh, you know, they were going to move on. And I wonder if this is why I'm going to share the map. Um, oh, good. Oh, good. 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 Here we go. I mean, I hope I can get it up. Uh, 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 come on, system preferences. Oh, I suck right now. Uh, all right. I don't know if I can share. Let me see if I can. No, I don't think I have one printed. Okay. All right. Come on. All right. Share. I can do it. I can do it, Carl. I can do it. I know you can. All right. Come on. Come on, y'all. Uh all right, maybe I can't. <laughs> That's okay. All right, keep talking while I figure out. While we're doing it, let's just remember that um, the demographics of it, when Mary McLeod Bethune was writing, she wrote a piece. Remember, we talked about this, this is in another section. What the Negro Wants, we talked about that a while. Miss Bethune got a piece in here, right be sandwiched between Gordon Hancock, we still got to talk about Hancock in North Carolina, and Frederick Patterson, who helped found the United Negro College Fund, called Cre Certain Unalienable Rights. When Miss Bethune writes her piece, then this was published. Remember Rayford Logan? We talked about all that in 1944. Black folk are a fraction of this country. The demographics have changed. You figure you get it? No. Okay, cool. We were then we So as the as the demographics change, the world of 2021 is very different than the world of 1944, even in terms of demographics in this country. And what you see in the popular culture is the social structure, you see you see us a lot more in the quote unquote white stream. People say mainstream, but that's not mainstream. This is mainstream to me. Again, you got to think differently about it. So that is not just because of enlightened people. That's because market share, you, you got a consumer base you're trying to sell to. And so you'll see more of us, not nearly as many as we want, but you'll see more of us in the platforms that reach vast audiences immediately, like our platform is reaching a lot of people. It reaches more and more people. We want to reach everybody, but we understand we're building this from the inside. In other words, we're doing this. Whereas if you put this on a platform, everybody has immediate access to, it's like putting a heroin, boom, and you say, right. But when you see us in it, you're seeing a social structure that is taking a sense of our various texts and practices, traces of our cultural meaning making. In other words, the sixth and final category of our six categories in Africana studies. And they are evoking it now deeply enough to resonate, meaning the it gets closer to the things we feel. Like when you see, uh, ah, there we go. There we go. There we go. I'm so uh, <laughs> determined. You know, no, I wasn't going to let it defeat me. Ooh. <laughs> no, of course not. So what are we looking at, Professor Hunter? What are we looking at? So in Misha Green, Misha Green shared this tweet. She said this was what she envisioned for season two in season two of Lovecraft. It begins in a new world. And that world is a country that sits precisely where the United States used to sit. Welcome to the sovereign states of America. And what you see in the green 
the tribal nations of the West, which I imagine all of the indigenous people that were pushed on the trail of tears out to the West. We claimed we had a wonderful conversation about Mount Rushmore. Y'all could check that out as well. Yes, yes. Uh, on the on the southern hemisphere, <laughs> where it's Florida, parts of Texas, Texas, Louisiana, all Alabama, all of that, Georgia, North and South Carolina, parts of Virginia, little most of Virginia, West Virginia, is the new Negro Republic. Something called the Jefferson Commonwealth is in in the far east, northeast, where Maine, Rhode Island, New York, uh, all of that little piece of Jersey, and then right in the middle very small space there called the White Lands. Now, what Misha uh, Green describes the White Lands as is a space of like zombies. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes, um, yes. But <laughs> what do you think about that? What do you think about her characterization? Because of course it was too obvious. And so she came back with, ah, let me tell y'all. What, well, what are zombies? They're mindless creatures Ooh. that are insatiable and have to eat and destroy everything in its wake. Um, Lord have mercy. Brains, so they're not very sentient, or, or uh, they don't use the brains. They brain, you know, they eat the brains. <laughs> and you know, uh, they can only. Well, anyway, I won't get. What into you trying to say? What you trying to say? Right. Mm. The white, the white walkers. When never had no problem when it was Game of Thrones, and it was the white walkers. That. That that you know, and and historically, you know, you think about. I was I was watching before we came in. I like to watch those uh, home renovation shows and things. And there's one mm -hmm. on. Uh, it's called Backyard Renovations, and they're in the forest. They're cutting down trees to build tree houses. Yes. These fabric, and I'm like the the forest. You um, displaced twenty plus trees that need, and then they go. And I was like, oh, the water, uh, the soil is too soft because you uprooted the things that are there to absorb. I mean, it's like the 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 fact that the climate right now, y'all in the places where it's super hot and it's raining That's and the great. storms and blowing over trees and the, all, that didn't happen because of, of nature. That happened because of that middle, that white lands right there. That's right. Now that's interesting. So, so do you think that this preview uh, from what I guess the writers call it, you would know this much better than I would, that's what they call a kind of broad conceptual universe. And then she said, none of the episodes have been drafted yet or written, but this is what they call the Bible. I guess right. that's the playbook right. for the whole thing. Right, right, right. I see. I see. You think that was enough to scare the hell out of them? Is it hell no? You said it was. I, I'm, I'm, I want to see this play out. Now, she just cut a deal with uh, Apple, right? Apple, yes. I saw that. So we may see it. You know, maybe Apple, maybe Apple has the, the you know, the testicular fortitude to, to Put, oh, oh you know, maybe oh, Apple has something that HBO does not. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, it, it, it's interesting though, isn't it? Uh, because first of all, you know, as I said, you know, you would know this as well, better than I ever will, that there are a number of different moving parts in these kind of conversations. Is it personalities? Is it a business deal? Is it is it is it conceptual, not conceptual? Because the easy thing, and this was my visceral response, as I said, and you, you remember, I, yeah, they didn't want to see this. But then I thought, no, this is driven by capitalism. And so if you've watched some of the Apple series, uh, For All Mankind, for example, is in, but the narratives, uh, and, and I can hear Holly Green in my ear right now saying, now don't be naive about this. Because one of the things you hear from the creators of Love Care Country is there is no white point of entry. Holly always talks about that point of entry. In other words, you know, wh white folks are asking out of governance structure, their governance structure, who they are each other, you know, what What's my point of entry? How, how do, I, do they do they ask that question? Well, no, but I'm saying in the sense that 
there are no prominent white characters to cheer for. So, oh. and so the that when Holly says point of entry, he means that you can't make no movie about a rebellion of enslaved people without some sympathetic white. I mean, when you look at that Harriet movie, you know, you got, I mean, they, they weren't even creative about shit. You didn't name this guy Bigger Long or some old beach. I mean, shit, a five-year-old could have come up with that name. And then, but you got this sympathetic white slave man. I mean, in other words, that's the point of entry. Holly's saying, white people are not going to watch this if it's just black people. But somehow Misha Green and him had a, they had white people involved, but they're on the periphery and they're not good. And I'm saying you're dipping your toe in the water, which is underscoring the point that I was about to make. When you see the demographics in this country change and when you see the globe in terms of geopolitics change, you can't keep running out the same thing to continue to dominate media, dominate market share. We're not going to watch it in the same way. So there's enough in Lovecraft Country that resonated to evoke it deeply enough to resonate. However, as was the case in Watchmen, as was as is usually the case in historical stuff, whether it be glory, which is, you know, in, in the light in the light of years after. No, hell no. But ultimately, you take the thing that resonates with us, the music we like, a, a racial theme, police violence, black people resisting. But you figure out a way to drive it back into a ditch with a reconciling it with this aspirational notion of we. So, but but what happens is what what the the social structure is doing that in a way because they want to keep the entity whole, whether they want to keep their corporate stuff whole, whether they will keep the United States whole. But in the governance structure, I want to do that. Hold on, okay. That's good. This is good. Actually, this is very good. We can leave it there for this. In the governance structure, black folk have always had this rich, robust, often contradictory, often we agree to disagree or we disagree and don't agree to disagree debate and dialogue about what quote unquote we want and it's formal and it's informal class plays a major role i mean there's there's a there's always been a kind of thin petty bourgeois certainly after enslavement among black folk of across the range who somehow think perhaps the best strategy is to assimilate or they can outsmart this social structure at some point or exist coexist with it and skimming off the top of the oppression structure and education plays a role we, you know, whether we're socialized not to study, to value basketball, overspelling, and then the child comes and shows you can and should do it all, at which point that blows it up, or the idea that we should just be trying to live and react. And so we continue to live and react. Now, how does that relate to what we're seeing here? This is the thing that I found fascinating. Many of the things we talk about, we're talking about now, find fascinating about this. First of all, let's just deal with Lovecraft Country, Okay. And I didn't pull any of the H.P. Lovecraft books. I pulled one, but I'm just going to leave that over there because he was a racist. But, you know, they took his, they have a bust they give out for one of the big science fiction prizes. They, they took his face off it. You're not going to do that anymore because the guy's a racist. And, you know, the whole idea of fascinating guy, brilliant writer, but that brilliance is emptied into the notion of a hierarchy of humanity uh, or better yet, yeah, a, a kind of co-centric circles of humanity. And who is at the center of defining humanity? White people. So white people are the best humans that they're ever going to be. <laughs> No surprise there in terms of social structure logic. So what happens is, pause for a second. Do you, how ironic is it that Misha Green took that book, written by a racist? Oh, but see, but see, but see, no, 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 no. This is the oh my god! Wow, watch this, professor. Watch this. Watch this. Here's the book. The book ain't by H.P. Lovecraft. The book is by a dude named Matt Ruff, who's born 1965. This is the book Lovecraft Country. I encourage y'all to get this book. You should read the book. And watch the series if you want. But the book and the series overlap and then they don't overlap. 
So, for example, the series runs past the book about halfway through the series. There are 10 episodes. So about halfway through the series, you see that crew, and there's some hell of an actors, you know, Jonathan Majors, Journey Smollett, of course, Michael Kenneth Williams, uh, what's what's our brother's name? Uh, brother and sister, uh, Courtney B. Vance and uh, Anjanou Ellis. But by the time you get uh, episode one, Sundown, right? You've seen the Sundown Towns. And by the way, we're going to talk about those in a minute. Let me pull this very good book, just so y'all know it. I'm going to put it here by uh, Candace Taylor, Overground Railroad, The History of the Green Book and the Roots of Black Travel in America. Oh, this book right here. We're going to come to that in a second. But Whitey on the Moon is the, is the name of the second episode. That's that Gil Scott Heron thing that he's doing. It ties into what the brother said in Summer of Soul. Y'all talking about right? Holy Ghost number three. Then you hear that, they hear that piano, right? Because they're closing out with, and it just sends an electric shock through black folk with a piece of cultural meaning making that Nina Simone recorded. Mm. Um, when did she record that? 65. 65. Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Then there's a famous 10-minute live version that she did. Very important. But that song. When you look at the credits for who is attributed to, she didn't write that song and she's pulling from several previous recordings, but I want to go to one that really sets the template and it's not, and it's called Cinnamon, but the, but the echo, it comes out of church. It's called, you better run. If you want to hear you better run, then you got to go to somebody who talk about Stevie Wonder's connections. We talked about Stevie. Remember that time we talked about Stevie in the car accident and I, and uh, Isaiah Tucker uh, and, 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 and the Dixie Hummingbirds and all them. Um, that song was recorded by the great Swan Silvertones, the great Claude Jeter, the Reverend Claude Jeter, who sang bass with the Dixie Hummingbirds, then eventually went to falsetto. So if y'all go look up Cinnamon and put in Swan, W-S-W-A-N, which was like a bakery that sponsored them after they came together in the 30s, you go look for Claude Jeter and you'll hear that song. And it comes, you know how they do, you know how they do that quartet, right? So you'll hear Claude come in, well, well you better run. Then your brother comes in, run when I say. <laughs> they, they hit their head, well, you better run. Run when I say somebody's calling me, you better run. Run when I say somebody's calling me, you better run. Run when I say somebody's calling me, I feel like my time ain't long. Well, you know, the early in the morning should sound and the dead end, the Christ is going to rise. Lord, if you ain't got good religion down in hell, you'll open up your eyes. Well, you better run. Run when I say, run when I'm telling you, some man, I run. Run when I say, somebody's calling me, you run better run. The whole idea again, Mary Clarkson, again, ways of knowing. Where I live is not my home. You better run. Because guess what? No flag, no government, no gun. Trumps the cosmic order that is going to be imposed on you for sinning, for doing evil, for coming against me. And so, you know, whether it be Curtis Mayfield saying, if there's hell below, we all going to go, or whether it be Cinnamon, where you gonna run to? Now we saw that in Watchmen. We saw because it's cute to drop in black music because people say, oh, I like that. I like that. Yeah, in the social structure, I like that. I like that. In the governance structure, yeah, I like that. Because you don't even know what you're listening to. So everybody watching Summer of Soul, the documentary, and when you see Mahalia Jackson come out there with all that rouge on her face and that wig, 
big hair hat, and you see her nearer the end of her life than she was at her at the height of her powers, and she bring Mavis Staples up there by uh, Chicago by way of Mississippi, who you know damn well her pops and all the rest of them knew May, who Mega Evers was coming out of that. Go look at their recordings during the period. And she said, baby, come help me sing this song. And Mavis Staples tells that story. And Mahalia Jackson's like, yeah, come help me sing this song. But of course, if you're coming out of the governance structure and Africana ways of knowing, then you know when she says, come help me sing that song, that don't mean I'm going to give you the mic right now. I'm going to wreck the first verse. And then I want you to sing. <laughs> come on now. Wait a minute. No, hell no. She's saying that she, she tore that song up, turned that microphone over. The younger sister came in, hit it, didn't try to outshine, and then they both carried it home. Mahalia Jackson is near the end. Mahalia Jackson out of New Orleans, now the same city as our young sister avant-garde. Mahalia Jackson say, hey, baby. But see, that's intergenerational. That's a bond. And you enjoying the music in the social structure, but you understand they're calling on something that transcends that flag. So while you call something a, a black Woodstock, they not think about Woodstock. We working at our soul salvation. So when you hear Nina Simone at the end of those episodes, that critique, black folk immediately know what that is. This ain't good versus, this is good versus evil. And in this case, the evil are white people. Cinnamon, you better run to. And at the end of all of that, they don't riff Cinnamon as she sings it doesn't Follow the lyrics of Claude Jeter, Swan, Silvertones, the other people who recorded. Did you Peter Tosh and Bunny Whaler, the Whalers, yes, the Bob Marley Whalers, recorded a version of Cinnamon. Go look it up. Their whole thing, Babylon will fall. In other words, and when you white boys go run to the rocks, the rocks ain't gonna hide you. You run to the river, it's gonna be on fire. In other words, you ain't you can't hide nowhere. This map, in other words. Oh, let's let's <laughs> let me let me tell you what Misha Green said about it. Yes. The White Lands. The White Lands is a territory that is completely overrun by zombies, as I mentioned. Most of them of the slower variety, but with pockets of fast-moving zombies, too. One price of the, quote, origin spell was the creation of a zombie population. Yes. Origin spell, okay. Years yes. into the epidemic, a joint effort was undertaken to corral the zombies into one location in the center of America. The White Lands now function as a dangerous border between the South, West, and Northern territories. X marks the spot where the source will appear. This is a 75-page Bible that she wrote. Yes. She's ready. She is ready. And they're not ready, or <laughs> they will be ready and we'll see it. But the thing is, in that context, this is where I'm going with it. The social structure will lift Misha Green, the sister in her mid-30s, brilliant. I mean, incredible. And in a second, I'll talk about, you know, even how that brilliance manifests itself in a way that enhances even the conversation we're having now. As I said, by the time you get around Strange Case, Meet Me and Daegu, you know, in other words, the, the middle part, episodes five, six, they're past the book. Now watch this. This is a white dude, Matt Ruff out of New York City. Lovecraft Country. This is the book that, 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 that the uh, series is based on. In 2007, Matt Ruff, who's been a novelist his whole life, he's in his late 50s now, mid 50s, he approached several television producers and Hollywood folk, and he pitched three possible concepts for writing for television. 
One was Lovecraft Country. One called 88 Names, and the other was a, a, a treatment called Mirage. They were all unsuccessful. Mirage was based on the idea of an alternative reality where the so-called Middle East and the United States were in reverse. And instead of somebody flying planes into the World Trade Center September 11, white fundamentalist Christians bombed Saudi Arabia <laughs> and set off. <laughs> now, he said it was like, this is no, this is 2007 mm -hmm. and the Iraq war is going on. This is too close to reality. Oh, it's going to tie together, right? Lovecraft Country was another treatment. They said, nah, we don't want that. So what did he do? He, Matt Roth then went and wrote this book, 2016. This book came out in 2016. He hadn't even written the book the series is based on. It started as a pitch to television. Matt Roth. Then he gets on a call with Jordan Peele and Misha Green. And he says, I really like Misha Green's work. Because remember, Misha Green did Underground. Those of you who don't know Underground, remember Underground only made it two seasons. And then, because what happened was the White Nationalists took over the network, right? W, uh, it wasn't, it was, it was, uh, who did you do the cut? The WN. Was it? it was a WN. WN? I mean, I did do the cut. Right. WGN, right? Because yeah. Sinclair and all them, right? Because these white nationalists, Fox is not white nationalists enough. That's why this map, as I told y'all, this map. <laughs> anyway, the country's dissolving. If you don't think the country's dissolving, that means either you haven't studied history or you just wishing against wish with them aspirational people who I would normally call delusional, but I'm trying to be a little balanced and charitable. But the point is that when Ruff is on the call, Ruff says, oh, I trust her. So they invite him in. He's a consultant. Of course, it's his book. And they and, and in many interviews, you can go, look up Matt Ruff, R-U-F-F. -F, look at his interviews. He says, um, oh, I didn't bother her. I didn't walk in. I didn't, I'm looking over her shoulder. I mean, I, I could have probably said something, but I didn't. I, I want to see what she does with it. He says she took this thing in, th in places I never even thought about. Now, spoiler alert, I'm going to take 30 seconds to do this. And anybody who doesn't want to, you can turn you can mute yourself right now. But for those of you who watched Lovecraft Country like we did, and if you read the book, you already know this, D is a boy in Lovecraft, and George lives. Because, man, well, in other words, it's not, in other words, what Misha Green did, she 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 enhanced the women, although women are already enhanced here. You look at Hippolyta, it's very clear. She, she changed it to a little girl. And, of course, the Courtney Vance figure loses his life. Matt Ruff didn't do that. But here's the thing to blow your mind. After you read Lovecraft Country, all 360, no, all 372 pages, you get to the acknowledgments page. All right, y'all hold on to y'all hats. He said, this novel had a longer gestation than most. The first seeds of inspiration were planted almost 30 years ago. In conversations with Joseph Scalberry and Professor James Turner at Cornell University. I'll pause there. James Turner is my friend, my Jegna. James Turner is one of the founding fathers of Africana studies in its modern academic formation. James Turner out of New York School in Chicago, Northwestern University, came 1969 to the Howard University toward a black university conference in the wake of the black power struggle and the struggle to create black studies. Students from Cornell had taken over the administration building in Cornell get a book called Cornell 1969, Cornell 69, it talks about it. James Turner was a young graduate student, brilliant brother, uh, 
just an incredible intellectual and also a very committed political figure. I mean, James Turner's fingerprints are over just about everything that can be called ever kind of state. If you call yourself doing black studies in America and don't have James Turner at the center of your conversation, you're not doing black studies. And yes, I said it. And let's sit down and talk. Let's let's talk. I have thoughts. But at any rate, Turner's still alive. He and his wife, you know, uh, upstate New York, New York has been in Ithaca. Because why those students who came down from Cornell to the conference at Howard said, we like this guy went back and said, this is the guy we want. He's the founding director of the Africana Research Center at Cornell University. The other brother, and it doesn't sound like a brother's name, right? But he is a brother. So Matt Ruff took classes with James Turner. Well, watch this. The other brother he names, Joseph Scannelbury, was a student at Cornell. Joseph, Sk look, Matt Ruff said he'd been writing since he was five years old. He would write stories in elementary school. He said, that's when I knew I could write a little bit and get, attract people's attention because the students would listen to my stories and they liked them. So he'd been writing. His mother bought him a typewriter when he was a kid. I mean, you know, you're going to be a novelist. So he's reading science fiction. He's deep in the thing. He said, and I had black friends. I had friends from all over. But when I went to Cornell, I had, you know, I, I was friends with people, but I was really a loner. And I would go for these long walks in the countryside. He said, here's the origin of Lovecraft country. He said, I would go out and walk in the countryside, looking at the hay and the people, this kind of thing. I came back to campus and I stopped by Ujamaa house. That was the black house. Cause when they took over the building and they got, they got the Afghan state center they got the black, this happened at Oberlin, uh, Calma Hurton and them, my friend uh, and classmate. In fact, her, her son is my godson. Just got his PhD in physics at L LSU, went to Howard undergrad. We all came, I remember when he was a baby, came to temple, Rebecca Dixon, uh, who teaches at Tennessee state university, another HBCU uh, master teacher. But at any rate, um, you know, she went to Oberlin and they have this house, black house, right? Uh, the U.S. Amherst. This was the period when they put in together those black dorms. Well, they had one at Cornell. So Ruff says he comes back as an undergrad. He stops by to talk to his friend who is also an undergrad, Joseph Scannelberry. Joe Scannelberry is like, man, he said, you did that? Yeah, you get some good thinking. Yeah, I like to walk. You know, he said, man, you should do it sometime. He said, that's when the idea for Lovecraft Country was born because Scannelberry looked at him and said, are you serious? You talking about walking in rural ass New York? He said, she, he said, Ruff said, yeah, I mean, it's not like the South. He said, <laughs> do you know what would happen to me? And then he said, in that moment, Ruff was like, ah, I did see a bunch of white people when I saw people and they did have dogs with them all the time. Damn. It never occurred to me, you can't do what I do. He said, that was my awakening. He started taking classes in the Africana Study, uh, Africana Research Center with James Turner. He said, the roots of this is black studies. Now, when y'all watching Love Calf Country, Misha Green takes something that the white dude conceived out of conversations and classes with a, one of the geniuses of black studies and his black friend who ends up, I think uh, this brother now uh, is oh, at the Kellogg Foundation high up. In fact, Cornell moved on the Africana Center about 10 years ago. Dr. Turner retired, and then they brought the Africana Center into the College of Arts and Sciences, and Turner was like, no, hell no. You can't do that. If you bring it into arts and sciences, we won't be able to tenure our faculty. It was part of the attack and the war on Black studies. That's what people do. Individuals can't be in institutions. And Joseph Scannelberry ran for an elected alumni position on the Cornell Board of Trustees in part to try to stop that. 
So they were still engaged in this intellectual war still to this day. But I'm sad to say we haven't got to Misha Green. He wrote the book after they rejected it as a TV thing. And he wrote the book based on 30 years, which were sparked by those initial groundings. And then finally, and it's interesting because there was another novelist who's down, who was at Cornell at the same time. Their, their, their paths overlap, even though they didn't know each other. Remember we talked about him when we were talking about comic books last year. Um, Victor Laval who uh, married to Emily Bernard, who asked the, you know, the Bernard family, James, Emily, Warren, and them, we all went to high school together, Hillsboro, Tim Wise, all them, crazy that little school produced all them people. But at any rate, uh, Victor Laval is black. He writes a lot of science fiction. He writes horror stuff. Uh, he did the Battle of uh, Black Tom. But they're in conversation, Ruff and, 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 and Laval. And Laval is like, yeah, I was at Cornell. I, had a, I came out of New York. I had friends from all over. And I remember I had a Colombian roommate who was kind of light, looked like he was white. I came in the room one day and he had a friend of his who was undergrad, Italian guy. And when I walked in, the Italian guy had taken a piece of paper and shaped it into a cone and put two eyes on it and put it over his head and said, I'm here to get you. And he said, my friend was over there stifling a laugh. He said, I walked out, went down the hall to this black dude who was living by himself, said, can I come hang out with you? Started listening to music. And the next semester, I transferred to Haram, to a, to, to, to the black house. I'm not. So Ruff and Laval are writing about this. So when you see Lovecraft Country, you're looking at something that speaks to the idea that black people live in a different country than the one you're talking about. And so why is that important? Again, I'll, I'll fin talk about this uh, Overground Railroad and Kandasi Taylor. This book came out this uh, last year, 2020. It's very interesting. The Green Book and the Roots of Black Travel in America. Now, we know the Green Book, of course, is the book that was put together by a small group, Victor Green. Victor Green, his wife, Alma, his brother, William, was in it for a while. Uh, in fact, let me show you a picture of the staff of the Green Book near the end. They published until the mid-60s, but I want to show you all, if I can find it quickly, a picture of the staff, just to give you a sense of who's working on this thing. Oh, man. Yeah, I, we might have to do a separate one completely on the Green Book because, yeah, I don't think I, I marked it. We should, we should. I mean, that's a whole, the oh. report being, uh, and yeah, that's a whole conversation. Yes, it's a whole conversation because it's 360 pages and it's got like places, about 5% of the places that the Green Book said to stop are still open or oh. at least uh, they, they have signs. Let's do that. Yeah, we should because because they had ads for like African artifacts in it. They had political stuff. They had, here are the laws in these states, the Jim Crow laws, and here are the places that say that Jim Crow is illegal. It wasn't just places to stop, in other words. In fact, here's one of the uh, the African ads. They said, get, get this African art. Get this Nigerian ebony from the Benin forest. In other words, the Green Book wasn't just about Jim Crow and segregation. In fact, it's interesting because, oh man, I wish it had black printing, I mean, black printers. Oh wait, here we go, yeah. Here's Victor Green and his wife, Alma. Here's the staff of the Green Book from 1961. It's one dude. It's all women. So understand, I mean, she talks about the fact that, you know, they do features. They did a feature on Bronzeville. Then they talk, they talk about um, the, the, the music. In other words, the Green Book isn't just places to stay. It's a curation of Black life. And so when you look at this map, when you look at this map that Misha Green leaked to us and tantalized, kind of tease us with, what you see is 
the possibility that they were going to take it into a direction that talks about the real nature of this country. There is no we. You understand there is no we. And that black section. All right, here we go. We end with this. That black section might have scared the hell out of them. Why? Look at the cover of this book. Let me move some stuff around here. The cover of this book. This is Edward Onasi's book. Free to Land, the Republic of New Africa and the Pursuit of a Black Nation State. Can y'all see that? See those states there? Those are the five states that the Republic of New Africa said in the 1960s, black folks should have. Now, the, the Republic of New Africa was formed in Detroit by, uh, it came out of a group of people called the Malcolm X Society. In fact, I pulled one of the uh, one of the key documents. I knew this brother as well. And of course, these, this brother is a founding member of the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America, which came into existence in the late 80s. But before that, going back to the 50s and 60s, this brother and his brother, Richard and Milton Henry, this is Richard Henry, who we knew as Brother Amari or Amabi, Amari Abubakari Obadeli. This is a little pamphlet called War in America, the Malcolm X Doctrine, the political philosophy of the Republic of New Africa. Amari Obadeli, who uh, published this first, in fact, I'll show you his picture, 1968, dedicated to Malcolm and to all Malcolmites. Um, here's here's Baba Amari right there. Brother Amari was on the faculty of Prairie View A&M for many years, another HBCU. Again, the genius of our black colleges faculties, and this isn't an invitation for somebody sitting at a HWCU to write a wonderful dissertation and explain who black people are to others. I mean, if you want to, I'm sure some of y'all are thinking about doing one of them social structure dissertations. And if so, go with God. I'll read it. You know, I will. I mean, I'll give you the money and a little money and read it, but I won't pay much attention to it in terms of implications because, like TV shows and everything else, once you've made a compelling case for what these people are trying to do, you're then going to write the last chapter where you drive it back into the ditch of, and this is, of course, the best of what America should be. Here we go with this aspirational delusion again. But at any rate, Amari Obadelli's brother was a lawyer, Milton Henry. These are, this is a copy of the Article Three briefs, establishing the legal case for the existence of the black nation in North America. The United States versus Amari Abu Bakari Obadelli the first. 1973, briefs written by President Amari Abu Bakari Obadelli and attorney Gaidi Odelli, uh, Obadelli, also known as Milton Henry, filed in U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Mississippi on June 25th, night coming, just passed it, June 25th anniversary, 1973. This is important. Why? Because remember, out of the Malcolm X Society, which is founded after Malcolm X is assassinated in 1965, the Henry brothers and all these other folks in Detroit come together. Oh, by the way, and if you want to have a good account, I mean, there's read Edward Onasi's book, but you can also get, um, get, in fact, you can get, uh, Errol's book. Errol says the provisional government of the Republic of New Africa emerged from the black government conference in March, 1968, which was held at several sites in Detroit, including Reverend Albert Clegg's central congregational church, which would become the shrine of the black Madonna. That's important as well. Um, because remember, this is during the same period. Eventually, the RNA getting a shootout with the police. They go to Aretha Franklin's father's church, Bethel. Uh, C.L. Franklin gives them a place to meet, and they have the shootout with the police out of Aretha Franklin's home church. The sir, bullet hole still in the wall there. In other words, these black people are trying to come up with a different concept of nation. This is around the time Dr. King is killed. 
says the conference was convened by the Malcolm X Society, which was formed shortly after Malcolm's assassination by former members of the group on advanced leadership goal, which had sponsored Malcolm's famous message to the grassroots presentation in Detroit in 63, his ballot of the bullet speech in April 64, and his last message in February 65. The reason we have a recording of one of those speeches is because the Henry brothers went to the speech that Malcolm gave, held up recording devices to get it all, and then took it to a brother who pressed it into a record because he had a little side presser label to do that. We all know who that was, Barry Gordy. See, it's who black people are to other people. Baby love, my baby love. And then it's who we are to each other. Who taught you to hate yourself? You've been hoodwinked, bamboozled, run them up, let astray. I'll print that speech for you. I'll get the records out, no problem. Word, brother. So. When you see that map, Misha Henry, she's playing with fire. Because guess what? She says some of these zombies are fast. Most of them are slow. Sound like uh, January the 6th, 2021 to me. In other words, this is the horde that can't be. We got to try to create a buffer and contain them. And that X marks a spot in what used to be known as Texia, which is what they tried to create a slave republic out there until they ran out there in 1846, the Mexican War. And and stopped it and, and brought Texas in. And by the way, I saw on the front page of today's New York Times, unless I missed it. Oh, my God. Texas gives citizens authority to enforce its law on abortion. OK, in case y'all missed that, let me just read the first paragraph. People across the country may soon be able to sue abortion clinics, doctors, and anyone helping a woman get an abortion in Texas under a new state law that contains a legal innovation with broad implications for the American system. Wait, wait, wait. wait. So somebody going to get an abortion, a regular-ass citizen, yep. can intervene and prevent that person from getting an abortion? I'm saying that Karen Hunter, sitting in Jersey or sitting in Barbados or sitting in Africa, American citizen, can sue an abortion clinic in Texas because a woman tried to get an abortion there. They passed the law. While we talking about voting rights, that's why they're in the legislature right now, that shovel mouth Greg Abbott. That map, in other words, isn't fantasy. See, what y'all got to understand is that this was never a country. And in fact, let me just get real straight on this. These are the briefs that they formed. But this is my, look, I loved Amari Obadelli, okay? And I'm not alone. My dear sister, friend, um, the great Nkichi Taifa, everybody in, in Cobra, uh, Mashriki Kamal, Jawanza, my man, uh, General Rashid, who's still alive in Florida, who was uh, one of the soldiers who was in the shootout with the police at Aretha Franklin Home Church. We we all love Baba Imari. In 1985, Imari Abu Bakari Obadeli went back to school. He got a PhD. Oh, by the way, the Henry brothers are from Philly. So I just mentioned that because, uh, you know, he went back to Philly wrote a PhD, got a dissertation from the same university I got a dissertation from 13 years later. He's a full-grown elder and went back, and the name of his dissertation in the, plot, in the Department of Political Science under the name Amari Abu Bakari Obadeli, the provisional president of the Republic of Africa. Well, I should mention one other cat who was one of their comrades in various formations. That would be my other friend, good elder, the great man who's now ancestor, the great um, Chokwe Lumumba and his wife, Nubia, uh, their son is now the mayor of Jackson. Because that's they went to Jackson. I don't know who Mega Evers is. You just flew out of Mega Evers. Okay, no problem. Because he killed Mega Evers in 63. 
He's seen as one thing in the social structure. He's connected to all these people who are connected to each other, like Dick Gregory, but not just Dick Gregory, which is why Mega Evers was always on a little bit of thin ice with cats like Roy Wilkins and them in the governance structure, because Wilkins is like, y'all can't control Mega Evers. Mega Evers is like, damn that, I'm trying to be free. I'm a veteran. I stand up for the flag. Jay Robinson says, I can believe that, brother. I don't salute the flag, but I respect you a bit. And we all on the same page. We all want the same thing. But this is a blurred thing in the governance structure. You can get along with Malcolm. You can get along with Dick Gregory. You can understand that while in the... But for the social structure, we just need this little piece of you where you're talking about voting rights and then you get shot in the back and become a martyr. And in our movement in memory, that's all we want from you. No, 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 no. We have to recover the momentum of memory in our movement in memory so that we don't read those two the same things. Because out of that same Mississippi, within five years after the assassination of Megar Evers and Jackson, you see the Republic of New Africa leaving Detroit saying we will we're going to get our five states. But why are we making that demand? Because in this in this in legal briefs they filed, the Henry brothers and then in the dissertation he writes later, Imari was like, y'all passed the 13th Amendment. Free and black people. Oh, by the way. Footnote. Candace Taylor tells a story in here. She says she out of Texas, right? She said, I'm, I'm with my mama. I'm a little girl. We ride in the car in Texas on the way to Houston. I look out in the field and I see all these men, black men, chopping cotton. I asked my mom, I said, Mom, it was hot. It was hot. I said, Mom, I thought y'all said slavery was over. She said, It is. And then the little girl said, uh, Kandasi said, well, What are they doing? Her mama said as they ride by, well, they're prisoners. Shirts off, chained to each other, chopping cotton in the field. She then says, so but why are they all black? She said, mother then didn't say nothing and they rode along in silence. Y'all sit with that. Because not far from Houston, that's where Dr. Obadelli, who got his PhD and then taught on the faculty of that HBCU prayer review for years, um, was teaching. Anyway, so the point. 1985, he makes the point, y'all pass that 13th Amendment, which we just heard Kandasi Taylor tell you where the large exception is, which is why at the end of her book on the Green Book, she said, y'all need to read about the prison industrial complex. That's where she tells that story. She says, "Because what should we do about the Green Book today? What are the implications today? She said, the stuff is still today and it's worse in some ways. And y'all, we need a Green Book more than ever. So, um, oh yeah, one of the things they put in the Green Book too is political statements and talking about who our political officials are, who we should have representing us. One of them was Charles Diggs, who was the black congressman from Michigan out of Detroit, came out of the undertaking business. His family were undertakers. Charles Diggs' pictures in the Green Book is too. The Green Book ain't just places to eat and sleep, okay? So at any rate, Abu Bakari Obadeli, Baba Imari says, y'all pass the 13th Amendment, say we free. And then you pass the 14th Amendment, say we citizens, but you never asked us what we wanted. He says the legal basis for our claim for reparations and for territory is because we were brought here from our various homes in Africa as a captured people. So unlike the Native Americans, the green part of that map, we're not the home team, but we were brought here as prisoners of a war. This was an ongoing war various wars that brought us into this and so we didn't come here to be citizens in this thing this criminal enterprise we should be allowed under your laws 
to declare our self-determining right to determine how we want to have a relationship with this state formation you call the United States. And when he wrote his dissertation, mind you, it's one black person, and I know her, Emma Lebzanski, at the history department at the Temple. When he wrote his dissertation, he had four people on his committee. Three of them was white, including the chair of his committee. The name of his dissertation was New African State Building in North America, a study of reaction under the stress of conquest. He said the whole narrative of Africans in diaspora is how African people, having been set upon, have reacted to the stress of conquest. In Haiti, they've managed to somehow hack out a country, and you ain't never let them forget it to the point where right now, while we in this conversation, y'all worried about the price of draws and blue jeans, which means you got to have a puppet in it that's going to invite you in to make sure that nobody breaks the supply chain, whether it be draws, blue jeans, or cocaine. That's one way. And in the United States of America, we somehow survived and preserved enough of our ways of knowing, passed on enough of our movement and memory when we controlled our institutions, and made enough culture to make our governance structure stand up despite your best attempts to kill us. And so what Amari and them are saying is as political theorists, and not only what they are saying, but what when you watch Summer of Soul is in all the songs being sung, in all the music being sung, because guess what? The same record label that, pub, that, that printed and put out Malcolm's speeches, so we have Message of the Grassroots, that same record label was the one that put out a brother who in Summer of Soul, we know, I know you won't leave me. Yeah, that's David Ruffin. But he come out there singing like, so both of us named Eddie Kendricks. David Ruffin come out singing falsetto. He sounded like Paul Jeter or something. I mean, you, you can't, what, what, what range don't y'all have? No shade. I'm an old man. So, you know, old people always think their era was better. But. I put it this way, come back in 50 years, we'll see what music's still being played. We ain't gonna be able to settle if anybody now is as good as anybody then. Just come back in 50 years and we'll see in terms of movement and memory whose songs are still being played. But the point is that all of that music, all of that cultural meaning making is part of a governance structure that is having arguments, debates, discussions. And what Amari says is this formation never gave black people the opportunity to decide how we wanted to be affiliated with it. Maybe we didn't want to be citizens. Y'all ain't from Africa. Yeah, we not from Africa, but we ain't got to go back to Africa. We want Mississippi, Alabama, <laughs> and that don't mean all the white people got to live, leave. That just means that we will move there and be in control of the government and everybody else can stay, but we ain't never going to let what happened to us up to now happen again. We'll pass the laws to make sure everybody is good. And if you look at the history of black people in this country, that's what Ms. Bethune and me talk about. Anytime you wanted everybody included, you probably want to talk to black people because we didn't say we were going to do what y'all did to us to you. And in during the time of Bethune, you know, the numbers weren't there, but the numbers increasingly get there, which means now you can have Regina King busting people in the face, white supremacists getting blasted out, the Asian girl coming out and vaporizing the, the Klan and the Cyclops and all this kind of thing in Watchmen and tied to the trauma of Tulsa, which again shows up in Lovecraft Country. However, season two, wait, you broke up the United States? Yeah. Wait, no, hell no. Hold on. Ho, ho, ho. Is this like when they talked to uh, uh to Ruff when he pitched Lovecraft Country and they said you can't do that Mirage because that's too close to reality? There's a okay. Wait, hold yeah. on. Uh, do you think they knew what? So yeah. I had never. I know, I know you know because you you studied this. That New Africa. Let's let's bring that in again because 
the, those southern states. That's more than the ones. More, more, right. So, so she said, all right, um, we're going to take Texas and show, show the book again. Yes. What, what, uh, let me see. Let me see. Oh, yeah. Here's a Nazi's piece. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, so that, that's Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, South Carolina. That's all. Yeah, they said five states. But remember, this is 1968. Right. So now she's like, all right, give me some, some Texas. We're going to take question. And yes. But see, but no, but here's, here, here's the challenge. People say, well, that ain't going to happen. It already happened, y'all. Please understand the logic of voter suppression. Wow. See, see, in fact, let me, uh, I pulled a book to actually help us through this because I want to give people some sources they can use to kind of think through this in a more complex way. Oh, I don't know what I did with them. Anyway, y'all, you, you know how this works. I'm going to keep looking. And anyway, I won't even, because now, I was going to get into more of the academic stuff and show you all a couple of pieces. That might... I already know. Yeah, yeah, I was going to show y'all some academic. Yeah, you already know, right? It might, it might come up, or I might not have brought them over here because... They were more academic, and I didn't really want to get too heavy into the academic. Oh, there they go. Hold up. They're over there. They're over there on the, on one of the other desks. Sing, sing to yourselves. This is it. He is undefeated, by the way, y'all. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I got. Oh, yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I ain't, I'm not. No, I ain't. Yeah, I'm at home, but I ain't home like that, right? So this is Donald Kettle's book. Donald Kettle's an interesting guy. He is actually at the University of Texas, Austin. He wrote a book last year called The Divided States of America, Why Federalism Doesn't Work. And if you read that this book in tandem with this one that just came out this year, this is Adam Gentleson's book. Y'all probably heard this one, Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. He worked on Harry Reid's staff. He's talking about the filibuster in here. He know all the rules of the filibuster and what's happening. Here's the problem we have in the United States of America. Oh, by the way, Baba Amare, defended his dissertation in May 1985, New African State Building in North America, a study of reaction under the stress of conquest. Uh, that book, the book that he published out of that is a famous book by Mario Bedelli called America, the Nation State, where he helps us understand. In fact, let me just help you all understand. Uh, chapter two of his dissertation, defining the state. What is a state? That's different than a nation. We talked about that many times. Then he goes to the Greeks, Aristotle, Plato, Weber, Max Weber. Uh, he talks about the Roman state and the question of citizenship. And then he spends about 20 pages talking about Egypt and Kush and concepts of the state that are outside of Europe and in fact coming into Africa. Then he devotes a chapter, Europe invades Africa. This is a piece that he wrote. A scholar who has already battled the government, been locked up. The battles in Mississippi is a whole nother thing. We have to do a whole thing on the, on the RNA. Coming out of Detroit, He's, he's writing this. He's not writing this at an HBCU with four black faculty. These are white cats, including the chair of the Department of Political Science at Temple. So you're not talking about people who are going to be predisposed to make, in other words, you got to, the next chapter, African states before 19th century conquest. He then spends a chapter on the German-British conquest of West Africa, then goes into old world states under the stress of conquest. He talks about Guinea. He talks about India. And he, in other words, he's going to give you the whole globe. Then European state building in the New World, south of the United States. And he talks about how the Europeans installed state structures. When you look at Haiti, you're looking at Africans literally fighting their way out of enslavement and then attempting to build a state model where there wasn't a state model before because it was basically a profit venture for the French and finance capital coming out of France. They, they were trying to build a state. So if you remember Toussaint, who dies, 
in captivity. Then Desalines comes along and he's assassinated. So this ain't the first time you've seen this kind of entry. Then you got uh, 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 Henri Christophe. He's like, I'm going to be an emperor. Why? Well, man, that guy is a fascist. No, they don't have a form of government. They're trying to come up with a form of government. At the same time, they're being attacked from everybody. So then the next chapter, chapter eight, of Mario Bedelli goes into Haiti. He talks about Haiti. He talks about Palmares in Brazil. He talks about Jamaica. And he says, how are these Africans responding to the trauma of this disruption and trying to build states south of the United States? And then part two of the dissertation, he writes the next chapter, chapter nine, new Africans in the North, meaning the United States and Canada, react to the stress of conquest during slavery. He talks about the Maroons. He talks about the Seminoles. He talks about Richard Allen, Frederick Douglass, Martin Delaney. He's talking about the black church. Then he starts about state building and counting. When you, so when we start, anyway, I wanted to go through the, that a little bit to let you know. When we start talking about these conceptual categories, all of this reading, all of this interaction with these elders, all conversations I've either been a part of, listening to, talking to, thinking through, it all finds its way into those six categories. This ain't just, oh, let's throw these sticks against the wall and see what happens. No, because you've got to have a framework that is simple enough to ask the question and then broad enough for you to answer it. So when the social structure of the United States, when he says federalism doesn't work, what he's saying is federalism, in fact, I'll just, I'll give you the, 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 the jacket so you'll know. Federalism was James Madison's great invention, an innovative system of power sharing that balanced national and state interests Federalism was the pragmatic compromise that brought the colonies together to form the United States. Yet even beyond the question of slavery, inequality was built into the system because federalism by its very nature meant that many aspects of an American's life depended on where they lived. Mm. Pause. Mm. You got a federal system where everybody gets two senators and population determines how many representatives you get. If you want to know how voter suppression plays into this, ask yourself a question. If you've got a Senate capped at 100 and everybody get two, you can never let D.C. get two. You can never let Puerto Rico and Guam be states and get two and two apiece. And you got to suppress the amount of people who are not white nationalists who can vote in those states. Misha Green is put out because since Amari and them asked for that, we done littered up states all over and all these Spanish people, people having babies. So if the Republic of New Africa was drawing that map in 2021, believe me, it'd be more than five states. And again, they didn't say black only. They just said, we got to have a cane break, a fire break against you white nationalists. Now, when, now how is white nationalism going to continue and how's this thing going to fracture? Adam Jenelson walks through it. Mm. Right now, because of y'all busted y'all ass, Cliff and Latosha and them, and we just mentioned Cliff and Latosha because they are our friends and we know they bust their tail. Everybody out there, I mean everybody, the political folk who are closer to my thinking and others who will say, you know what, this voting thing is a setup, but you know, we're going to vote anyway. The people who said this voting thing is a setup and I ain't going to vote, but you know what, I am going to knock on these doors. So who got those two senators elected in Georgia, even they set aside all the political difference. Got, now, the press says it's 50-50. It's not 50-50. It's not 50-50. Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema are not with them. You, would y'all please read what Kettle said? Read what Jenison said. Jenison told y'all the filibuster is imaginary. It's not in the Constitution. It's not. In fact, you know what Jenison reminds us? Something we talked about months ago. John C. Calhoun, the white nationalist supporting slavery, who joined with the South Carolinians when they seceded from the Union. The filibuster is white nationalism's way. Once they lose the population fight, 
to hold on till the wheels fall off. And this man then told y'all kettle is based on where you live. So voter suppression, we are at the inflection point in this country. In other words, we can't win any more elections if everybody registers and if everybody votes. So we got to shave off 5% in Georgia, 5% in Texas, because this next cycle, 2022 and 2024, we won't win if they really go out there, if they really go out there. So I'm saying all that to say that when, you know, finally, when we see Misha Green put a map up like that, that cuts a little too close to the reality that already exists. And in Texas, where they've been stealing elections recently and they can't win another one based on demographics, if you politically organize, I don't mean everybody look alike, gonna vote alike. A lot of this is just getting you in the room to have the argument and get people organized. But as we saw on the front page of today's New York Times, you could be sitting your ass in the center of black as hell Chicago, pick up the phone, call Texas and say, I'm suing the abortion clinic. And Texas then told you, come on, why? Because we are fighting this war right here that Misha Green and put color codes on. And she even put the X where we have in the ground zero of the fight. This might have been a little too close, Professor. <laughs> wow. It may have been a little too close. Do you think it's going to get done? You think it's going to get made? You think Apple has the, the fortitude? Oh, well, we'll see. Well, see, here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. It's not about courage. Mm. I think, I think, like I said, there's a lot of moving parts. So Apple's looking like, oh, y'all lost y'all mind. Disney looking like, oh, yeah, okay. If you didn't sign the deal, I was going to sign the deal. Why? Because the thing we had to always remember is it's mythology. There is no we. So you got people like you, me, and millions of others who want to see it. So they counting their dollars like, we might have to make this movie. Right. We might have to make this series. Oh. They, you know, no, you're saying that Wakanda. Um, mm. Oh, I didn't talk about that. Oh, I didn't even talk about. It. I should. I should make. I should say a word about that. I should say a word about that. Uh, let me think about this. How should I say this? What did Wakanda change? What is that? What What did Wakanda change? Well, I mean, they got a couple of billion dollars of money, especially Nick Rose went out and saw it five times. So in that case, it didn't change nothing. Um, you know, we got caught up in a conversation about uh, you know, our sister Felicia Rashad and Bill Cosby and then, But what I saw the day of the announcement that she was made the dean of fine arts, the chair of Disney, Robert Eilers, said he's going to be happy to help raise money for a new school of fine arts at Howard. Okay, dude, you're the CEO of Disney, which means maybe you could have wrote, okay, I think it's going to cost 30 billion. Here's the first 10. You didn't say that. So I'm not sure what we got yet, except a few more people got some jobs and black people are plastered over everything, but the profit went into the pockets of the people who continue to get richer. And so I, I think mm. the idea, the human imagination now we're going to talk about ways of knowing just for a second. The human imagination is shaped in the now. We're all we, this is all the only moment we have right now. But in the now, we look at the conditions we're in and we make choices about the world we want to live in, even as we're thinking about it and we move. Historical fantasy, whether it be Lovecraft Country, whether it be Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer or Harriet, D, Harriet Tubman Demon Slayer, or Watch this. Lovecraft ain't the first time we've done this in, in our culture meaning making. Go back and get Sutton Griggs' book, Imperium in Imperio. Before that, go get Martin Delaney's Blake. Come forward and look at the science fiction. In fact, get my man. Oh, wait. I know because I, I, I started to pull all those books, but I said, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. Get a. Oh, man. I thought I had him over here. George Schuyler. If you haven't heard, y'all haven't heard the name George Schuyler, 
he did a book called Black Empire. He serialized that in the, oh man, he, ser he serialized Black Empire in the, uh, in the Black newspaper, in the Black press. Oh. Uh, that's okay. That's all right. It is. It is. Black Empire. I want y'all to see Black Empire because it's one of those books that Black people did. In other words, we've been talking about having our own country for a long time. Eh, I wonder what I did with it. Anyway, yeah, you, you definitely know how it is. I may come back to it. But at any rate, we've been doing this before Lovecraft Country, before Watchmen. But see, Lovecraft Country in this sense, yeah, I think it could get made. Or they might make a graphic novel of it or something like that. But in terms of Wakanda, as I said, when we think about ourselves in the now, historical fiction, historical historical fiction is not as safe as Afrofuturism. In other words, mm. remember HBO was gonna do that thing, Confederate. What if the Confederate oh, won? Yeah, what if the if the South had won? Right. And we when we we got busy. Too close. It's too close because the South did win. See, this is the problem. The South won the we in terms of whiteness because putting some hillbillies or some CEOs or some police officers in jail for January the 6th and refusing to even look the way of your quote unquote colleagues who were over there coordinating the attack tells you that they already won. The white nationalists won. You can't prosecute them. Okay. And anybody saying that they didn't win and we're better than that, you should sew your lips shut. Because what you're doing, you're engaging that, you're making people crazy. Because people can see we're living in the now. Josh Hawley not going to jail. Donald Trump not going to jail. Y'all ain't slow walking it. And I know, Joe, you kind of want to do it, maybe. And I know, Merrick, you kind of want to do it. But guess who really want to do it? Kristen Clark and Vanita Gupta. And guess what? They can't do it because you the one making the call. And I know y'all had a meeting at the White House last week and you blew a little bit more smoke up people booty and it's very nice. And Okay, and we're going to fight. No, you ain't because your boy blow dry Joe Manchin ain't going to do nothing. And Kristen Sinema is shook now. Why? Because the Arizona white nationalists have run roughshod. Now she a little scared. Why? She's scared because she ain't going to get reelected. And so now she might loosen up a little bit. And so William Barber and them, Liz Theo Harris and them, everybody involved, I say, yes, put on political pressure, try, but understand there's something more important to them than the United States of America. Something more important to them than the United States of America. Something more important to them. And that is their sovereign white, their sovereign right to be white and to You're be right. George. Right to say white. They, right, they right, right. They sound right to be white. The sovereign white to be white, right? And in terms of a conflict with capitalism, there's no real conflict because the corporate interests are looking to continue to maximize their profit. And so, you know, woke capitalism, as they're calling it, and there's a whole shelf of books on that. I and mean, certainly in the last year, we've seen it. You know, this is an attempt to make sure they continue to make profits. So when you see what kind of in that context, understand that that's not historical fantasy. So that's not HBO saying, I don't know if we're going to do Confederate. That's not, you know, remember, uh, in fact, remember um, Aaron Magruder did this graphic novel a few years ago, Birth of a Nation, same guy did the boondocks. What if black people had their own country, United States? I mean, it's very interesting. I mean, and see, that's different though, because oh, in fact, in fact, they, they made a film where the Confederates won. Spike Lee was involved. Is it called Confederacy? Y'all can look it up. Somebody look it up. I've seen it. Abraham Lincoln, 
dies in exile, I think, in Canada. They catch Harriet Tubman. So, oh, by the way, y'all go to narrative. Go to narrative and look at our conversation on John Brown. Because in our conversation on John Brown, okay, now I really do have to. <laughs> there you go. There you go. There you go. I knew it was going to bother you. No question. You knew it was going to bother me, right? <laughs> so as long, if it's white, if it's if it's white, you can have that because it's a morality play. You're worried about the future. So you can have historical fiction based on what if and put it into the future and grapple with it because it gives you a chance perhaps to the last ditch effort to stitch this thing together. That's Margaret Atwood who wrote The Handmaid's Tale years ago. And then The Testaments, I resisted the urge to go pull them both, the novels. You know, Canadian, right? I mean, the, Margaret Atwood is writing about what happens in a place where the theocracy triumphs, right? And then they make that into, and she, and what's this, uh, the lady name? She killing it, was on the West Wing. Uh, oh, who? Elizabeth. Uh, Elizabeth Moss. Moss, right, right. The Mad Men. Yeah, yeah, Mad Men, but I, I see Zoe Bartlett. Bartlett. She played the daughter. She played the daughter. Yeah, uh, Zoe Bartlett. I see Zoe yeah. Bartlett, right? But, that, but here's one that has never been made into a TV series or a movie. This is by the, the, the very prominent science fiction writer, Terry Bisson. What if John Brown had won and Harriet Tubman had won? And we talked about this on Narrative. Fire on the Mountain. A novel by the author of Talking Man. This is Terry Bisson, another white man. He's saying, what if John, and this is like science fiction too. It opens with the protagonist. She's coming back from Africa to get her daughter because their grandfather, her grandfather was the one who was at Harper's Ferry and he's take, she's taking his papers to Harper's Ferry. And there's a new African nation in the South. And all, I mean, they got the tricked out science fiction. Africa has got all the high technology. There's trade going on. And the United States is broken up. I'm saying, if between Lovecraft Country and Fire on the Mountain, if I had to pick one, I'm picking Fire on the Mountain. Y'all go get this and see what y'all think. And then finally, again, this is Black Empire. There it is, 1936. This is a later edition. I ain't pulled 36. George Schuyler, African people in the United States go back to Africa and, and help the Africans liberate Africa from colonialism called Black Empire. Now, he was an arch conservative later in life. Didn't he, write, didn't he write Black No More? Yeah, Black No More. Same guy. Same okay. guy. Black I, Empire. Right. We, we're going to have that in narrative, too. Yeah, I, we, don't have, we definitely going to have Black No More. Uh, that, yeah, I already, I already transcribed that. Oh, okay. oh excellent. Oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. So see, if it's Handmaid's Tale, White on White, we can have a conversation. Here's another one. Philip Dick. Did y'all see the Amazon series, The Man in the High Castle? This is Philip Dick. Y'all know Philip Dick. Philip Dick was getting in people's minds crazy. Remember, Philip Dick wrote a short story that they made into a movie with uh, Tom Cruise called Minority Report. What happens if you can read somebody's mind and make them and, and arrest them before they commit the crime, right? And at the end of it, a Minority Report, the police, the, Tom Cruise is like, no, nah, we can't do that. They didn't commit the crime yet. So you can't do that. So in other words, it's a morality play on whiteness. But in this one, the Nazis win and the Japanese win. And so the Japanese take the West Coast and the Nazis take the East Coast and the middle part of the United States is this uh, zone where you got black people, Jews, Colorado, they trying to figure out how can we hide this kind of thing. They wiped out almost all the Africans on the continent, the Nazis, white supremacists, and they now in rockets, they done gone to Mars. Again, 
Philip Dick is writing all that, but it's in the hands of white people. Then this young sister comes along, brilliant, remixes a brilliant novel by a white dude who was turned that way by black people in the Black States program, one of the oldest in the country. Yeah, nah. Nah, we good. Man, y'all got men in the high castle. You got the handmaid. Yeah, but that's us. We can't have you Negroes walking around free. Although in Man in the High Castle, the third and final season, and it's not in the book. It's not in Dick's novel. You got black people in the United States who engage in an insurgency because they're going to create some space to operate. If y'all haven't seen Man in the High Castle. I'm not watching it because it was too damn disturbing. Say some, since I know we got, we're going to close in a second, but say something about that because that, I felt the same way, but what you said that. Uh, no, I mean, you know, the, the this has been a haunting fear and I'm going to say it out loud of mine that, you know, there would be a time when we'd be rounded up again like that, you know, and I, since a little girl. So watching that was triggering, but I also could see it. And this was before, you know, as Trump became president, I was like, the climate in this country and then 74 million of y'all showed up again in bigger numbers and mm. you're, no, nobody's going to jail. Nobody. And so the climate is still what the climate is. And if we're not vigilant and paying attention and doing the things that we need to do, history always, what do you say? What's, what, what's that you say? History doesn't no, you say history doesn't repeat. It does what? It rhymes. Mm. History doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhymes. Or as Jelani Cobb says, and in fact, my friend Jelani Cobb, who um, um, I guess the report was out that they tried to get Jelani to come to leave Columbia and come to Howard. I'm like, Jelani uh, went to HBCU and he worked for years at Spelman. Jelani know what it is. <laughs> so I don't know Jelani. Hey, Jelani, if you see this, bro, come on down, man. Look, Tanahasi coming. Nicole coming. I'm saying if more of y'all come, then we might actually be able to, you know, uh, to get enough attention on these HBCUs to get those faculties freed up to do what we need to do because, you know, it's a different kind of world. So I don't know. But anyway, uh, uh, the sister who I, who I don't know, uh, Candace Taylor, again, Overground Railroad, very important book, on the green book. But what she she quotes Tanahasi, uh, she quotes uh, Jelani and Jelani says, um, Jelani says, History doesn't repeat itself. Human beings repeat themselves. Mm. And so it's interesting. I said, okay, that's an interesting concept because if this country wanted to be different, you know what it would take? Be yeah. different. This is what Miss Bethune is saying. Should be different. Just be different. You, you don't need, don't blame this on Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton. Don't paint yourself up and go make, put these words in Hamilton in, in their mouth. No, be different. Just be different. Yeah, just be different. And yeah, so no, I, I meant to say Afrofuturism, I think. Historical fiction can be uncomfortable because like you said, a tick to the left, a tick to the right, man on a high castle, that's America. They just changed it out for the swastika. They got the same whiteness, the same thing. They even had to change. In fact, that's why all them white Americans in Man in the High Castle and in the novel went to the Nazis. Oh shit, we was waiting for y'all. This, in fact, I ain't got to, I ain't got to hide it no more. This is what I'm saying. Let's exterminate these Jews. Let's exterminate these black people. I mean, Dick has got it right on it. But here's the difference: fantasy, including Afrofuturism, creates a safe space for desire that doesn't cost anything. So other words, Wakanda is great. Why? It ain't like I got to make it real. <laughs> I've even seen some stuff on social media and I said, oh, wow, Howard is going to be Wakanda. Shit, I hope not. Wakanda's not real, y'all. And understand why there was a Wakanda in the comic books. If you read the comic books, you know why? 
it's a Wakanda because they got a metal that if anybody come there messing with them, they cut their whole head off and send it back to where they came from. Say, you're going to send somebody else. We'll cut everybody's head off. When you ready to do that, I'm ready for that. That's what Amari and them talking about. Because once you have it, you've got to be able to defend it. That's why the Jackson police and the Mississippi people came after the Republic of New Africa and they called back to Detroit for help. And you know who tells that story? Who's telling what she made a, became an ancestor? Who uh, Jeannie Theo Harris, Liz Theo Harris' sister, wrote about in the rebellious life of Rosa Parks. They called, the Republic of New Africa called Detroit looking for John Kyers and them to help them because the damn police didn't come for them. Who picks up the phone in Kanye's office? A woman Kanye's gave a job because she and her husband Raymond had to get the hell out of Alabama after what they did. And they had family in Detroit. It was Rosa Parks that sent in those youngsters to help the Republic of New Africa. One of them being Chokwe Lumumba. This is Rosa Parks. See, this ain't Montgomery on a bus social structure. This is Rosa. Rosa Parks was when they when the police shot up the blind pig. There's a book called the Algiers Motel Incident. In fact, they made a movie of it. What's that movie? Um, where uh, Bilal and Black Thought did the soundtrack. Detroit. It ain't fair, right? Remember that, right? And John Boyega was in it. That's the story of what happened at the blind pig. But of course, that's Hollywood. Holly look at something like that and say, see, this is Hollywood. Why? You made it about the white girls. You made it about the police. You made it about the black man who's a cop's got a moral dilemma. And then you stopped it at the end with a couple of little thing at the credits. What they didn't show y'all was that those cops got off. No surprise. But in the governance structure, those police were tried in absentia by the people's jury. And guess who was one of the members of the people's jury? Rosa Parks. See, why don't y'all make a movie about that? And they declared them guilty in Detroit. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> Maybe one day in a space that we're creating, those, mm -hmm. movies, those movies will get made. Those pieces will get told. I think so. Yes, I think so. I think so. Uh, Narrative. Yes. Yes, uh, we are. Learn, create, grow. So that's the create part. Yes. Yes. We are in the process. Um, this is, a, as I said to somebody in the in the chat, this, I'm looking at it, the, however long it takes to build a pyramid. I just uh, had an interesting conversation with our brother, Brad, uh, the architect at Howard, uh, about how the Pyramid of Giza was built. And we are building it in the same exact way. It's going to yes. take all hands on deck. And it's a yes. of love as the pyramid was built by slaves. Nope. People who cared about the, the governance structure. That's right. That's right. So that, you know, join, join narrative, y'all. And if you don't to spread the word, y'all see what we doing? It's we. We. It's we. It's this is we. When you say we, we mean we. <laughs> Love you. Love you too. Have a wonderful day. Thank you, everyone, from wherever you are from and new people. Welcome. Uh, as as Dr. Carr said, spread the word. We'll see you next month. Yeah. Uh, we may see you before then because when this social media platform uh pops off, I'm gonna come, we're gonna oh. come back here and do that. There's a uh, social lot. media platform. Yeah, because we need a safe space to have conversations on unfettered, uh, you know, unmolested, you know, uh, without other people's opinions about what we're saying and oh. trolls, all the trolls, no the troll free zone. Don't you want a, a place where we could just have a conversation while somebody coming in, uh, putting up clown symbols and, and doing dumb stuff? Ooh, sound like a governance structure to me. Yeah, You're you covering all the bases. Yeah, all the bases are covered. What, what? Wait, hold on. Before we leave, let's just, uh, Misha Green did this thing. You know, oh, uh, not me, not me. Uh, we got to create the world we want to live in. I'm not sure if I want to live in this exact world, 
but we at least need to have the ability and the power to do that. That's exactly right. We can't do it as long as we're constantly facing it and looking for acceptance and, and pouring pouring our glass through a filter, uh, right. our glass of water through somebody else's filter that's filled with filth. That's you right. Know, we that's have exactly to do right. Yeah, we have to do that. So we want to live in a world we got to create it, right? That's right. We got to we got to create it, and once we create it, we will maintain it in the best and and defend it. Because Nina didn't ask you, Center Man, where you gonna run to? You run to the rock, right? That go hide you. (laughs) That's word to Claude Jeter. Love you. (laughs) All right, y'all. Bye, y'all.